0: Leftovers season two episode eight international assassin is over but we're just getting started here on post show recaps. hello everybody Josh Wiggler here and I'm here with the man who I'm the one who named him an international assassin Antonio Mazzaro
1: oh it was you it was you who did this giving you a little bit of the Jeff Garland. I'll take it. I I like to be that kind of assassin rather than, you know, the kind of assassin where uh, maybe like you're a social assassin. Yeah, you're causing problems in conversations. I'm happier to be an international one. International man of assassins. You're a fan of the Palestinian chicken. Oh, delicious. That chicken is unbelievable. I don't know what they put in it. They deny our every right to exist, but it's delicious. It's
0: it's so good. It's so good. All right, we're getting really confused. There's way too much business at hand. Yeah, Josh, curb your your enthusiasm here. Yeah, I'm going to curb my enthusiasm on that. There's way too much business at hand on the leftovers to really dilly-dally too much. We're going to dive right into this episode, which is one of the more complicated episodes of the entire series. And Antonio, um, best episode of the series for me. Yeah, me too. Uh, I know that's divisive. This is where he, where I would ding the Rob Cesternino bell. Uh, this is, you know, it's divisive. I know that there's some people who are really not feeling that. I feel like that's Fewer and further between, though. Um, I don't know. I am so over the moon with what The Leftovers just did here in International Assassin. Certainly the most bizarre episode of the series that we've ever seen. And for my money, the, de- the decisive, decisive best episode of the show.
1: Yeah, is that two Zs and one R in Bazaar? <laughs> yes. Yeah. and can we not go over the moon? Because we're already in other realms, so I really don't want to go into the astral plane if we can avoid it. Well, we can go over the moon, just don't drink the water. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, there's a there's a lot going on with the water. Can we talk about the water? There's so we much can, going on. We can talk about everything, I hope. We
0: can talk about the water. We can talk about everything. I mean, there's so much to discuss. This was, this was great. So my night last night, we're recording this at around 9.30 p.m. on Monday night. My night on Sunday was I was watching Walking Dead. I recapped Walking Dead live with Rob Sesternino. I'm sorry. A a thing happened on The Walking Dead. It was fine. It was whatever. Not going to have to get into it right now, but it was annoying. Um, Then I stopped. I I finished the podcast. I turned on the leftovers. Usually I wait until the next day to watch it, but I just had a feeling that this was going to be a really, really good episode considering where uh, last week's episode had ended. And my gosh, I basically live texted
1: every reaction that I had to Antonio, uh, and it was a roller coaster. Yeah yes it was glorious there there was there were, i mean there were so many highlights and i don't know i just uh, i don't know what to think about about watching this not live like i can't imagine if you had heard oh my gosh what did the leftovers just do oh my gosh what's going on and you know i'm just getting text from you holy ass this is so much fun concierge yep. virgil this is the best is this inception or the leftovers international assassin this is very easily the best show on television kevin harvey in all caps this is uh-huh. amazing yeah. we're loving it
0: yeah i really like the line uh, i believe i excerpted this for you and forgive my french i am gonna uh, drop a hard f right now do it. uh wayne will you shoot this motherfucker in the face for
1: me <laughs> yeah and wayne was ready to do it he too. was
0: ready to roll yeah look this episode had holy wayne in it and i loved it
1: yeah it's a holy wayne taking a holy shits first first time you see him it's it's fantastic and,
0: and if you know me in the leftovers podcasting i've never been a holy wayne guy and i loved holy wayne
1: here this yeah. was great holy wayne this is i mean look everything that happened in this episode was a treat, the way it was scored, the way it was paced. It was just fun, even though it was also just, a, just totally screwing with everyone's minds and really putting people in a position where it was very difficult to not want to just pause it every few seconds and rewind it and look at what was going on in the background of scenes. But yeah, I mean, this was just so, so much fun. And for a TV show that deals in depression and loss and sadness and difficulty, and for a show that contains so much of that, I mean, this was just pure glee. Uh, And not in the negative TV show about a high high school singer's way. This was just, it was really just fun. And even though it was dealing with like the deepest sort of things that, that have gone on in The Leftovers, it was really just paced and, and the way it. I mean, there were random attacks throughout the episode because of his chosen profession or, or whatever for other reasons we can talk about. Uh, it was just so much fun.
0: It was great. It really was, and I, I think that that's right. I think like just the fact that he was an international assassin, and that's sort of the framework that they build the episode around. Um, it really does just kind of catapult the episode forward, where there's just the random inception type of action scene. Or I know that uh, that the director of the episode compared it to like a Bourne movie. Um, it, the fact that there is that aspect at play, obviously, me who's you know I'm an action junkie, I love seeing stuff like that. You never really get that on the leftovers, and it just worked kind of. Beautifully. Beautifully and strangely, and that just you know really moved everything forward at a frenetic pace. But you talk about how this was a fun episode. It really, really, really was. A lot of that is on Justin Thoreau's shoulders and just sort of the incredulousness he throws out at people like Virgil, where he's like, "What the f are you talking about?" Uh, an international assassin that makes no effing sense (laughs) it's like his you know it's very honest where he's like the person who's in the dream and in like kind of if it's a dream or if it's you know in this other world he has memories of where he was right before this he has memories of Virgil and he's just utterly confused and the way he plays that confusion is very very funny but also very very earnest and because it's so earnest it's very tender and therefore very heartbreaking and really really moving and affecting everything between him and Patty especially little girl patty and then jeopardy patty Um, there was just a, a way that thoreau was playing kevin garvey in this episode i mean he's been really terrific as this character pretty much throughout the series really really terrific throughout season two but there was just something so profound about the way that he played this character in this episode to the extent that what we had said a couple weeks back about carrie coon as nora durst and regina king as erica and how those two should really be in the front of the pack for Emmys this year. I feel like Thoreau is really firmly in the conversation or ought to be. Um, you know, just the performance he gave tonight was spectacular, spectacular, spectacular. I can't say enough about it. And I think that that is, you know, without such a masterclass performance, I don't think that this episode could sing nearly as high as it does.
1: I agree completely. Um, yeah. I mean, I couldn't agree more. And he doesn't get enough credit just because he's working alongside such Titans and people that are really just getting. A lot more to chew on and he's really had just kind of confusion. And difficulty to chew on. That's really what he's, he's kind of felt. But the last couple of episodes when he's really been literally at the end of his rope in a couple of moments, uh, I think that, I think that he's really shown, I think, multiple dimensions, uh, to the dementia and showing the pity that came out in this episode from Sunday night, uh, the sadness, the compassion, uh, these things from Kevin Garvey that um, have been really kind of held out or, uh, masked by other things to see those come to the forefront and be like the prevalent emotions uh, throughout the course of this uh, the arc of this episode which also contained confusion and all the other things he's been experiencing i think that was fantastic i think justin thoreau really just you know the, whatever accolades he gets won't be enough uh this guy is so multifaceted he directs he writes he does all these other things uh, he gets into fights and breaks his nose in the process apparently right like apparently he literally got sh- dusted up in this episode right yeah
0: yeah he gave an interview to the hollywood reporter after this episode uh they were talking about the fight scenes that he did and he said yeah i actually got my nose broken and had to get some stitches in my lip uh and it wasn't the initial fight scene with the bellhop he says no that one worked out just great uh he says it was the one where the guy puts a gun to my head near the elevators i got 10 stitches and a broken nose in one maneuver so we had to shut down shooting for a little bit (laughs) we were we were going for it yeah
1: i'd say Um, so yeah, so he put his beautiful face on the line for us. Well, and thank you for that. He he also put his beautiful butt on display for us, didn't he?
0: Mm, yeah, I mean, of course this is going to be my favorite episode of The Leftovers. You guys know how I feel about the juicy butts, and that's one of the first things we see in
1: the episode. Oh my gosh, there's so much to talk about here, Josh. We can't get hung up on juicy butts.
0: Oh, uh, no, but I all I have to say is that I have a real Theroner for this episode. Oh, there we and for, go. And for, Kevin, and for Kevin Harvey or Garvey or whatever you want to say about him, but I think another thing just sort of generally that really encapsulates what I loved about this episode is the fact that it's so bizarre, it's so strange it's not what anyone would have expected this episode to be um and it could have been really self-serious and like too self-referential and too up its own butt um up its own juicy butt it really could have been all of those things but there was so much self-awareness and one of my favorite critics sean t collins uh, over at decider.com wrote in his recap of the episode first off he just said like you know why even like try and explain what just happened there why even why even work at that? You know, it's, it's an inexplicable thing. Um, but one of the things that he said was uh, this episode with a self-aware sense of humor capable of saying, are you effing serious before we can? Chuckling at the obviousness of its pop culture references and mythological symbolism. Um, I, I think that that speaks to sort of just the general tone of the episode that I really appreciated where it was all but looking directly in the camera and being like, I know this is weird. Yeah. Just, ro- just roll with me.
1: Yeah, and I, I think that that – I mean, I think he's right. I think that that is a great observation and it's kind of just unabashedly pushing forward into this and embracing it. And look, this is not unique. Alan Seppenwall over at HitFix.com, great television critic, one of my favorites, really gets into the nitty-gritty comparing this to – what is a kind of an important and memorable arc from The Sopranos, uh, right. where a, a certain character, and I don't want to spoil too much because there are people who didn't watch The Sopranos, but a certain character is faced with uh, his or her own view of the the kind of purgatory or limbo uh, and making choices in that world, which may impact whether they live or die on the other side. Another
0: so, Kevin, you can say.
1: Perhaps another Kevin. I believe the alias is Kevin Finnerty in that, yes. uh, in that kind of arc. So, there are a lot of great comparisons to, to be made there. There are a lot of great television shows that have done episodes like this that exist in sort of a different f- frame or realm than their main world. But I don't think any that I can recall have done an episode like this so gleefully, so much full of kind of laughter and self referential kind of humor, um, so much full of that sort of thing that uh, it was, you know, there's obviously the comparisons to Lost in Lost 6 season you have a lot of these sideways stories uh, and we you know that that the characters from Lost are we're seeing them in little bit and di- a little bit different roles and we don't particularly know why as we're doing this and a lot of that was really fun but this is just one contained episode of television featuring an international assassin that is wonderfully shot wonderfully directed wonderfully acted and also just so superbly written in terms of its laugh lines and w- the, the punches in the gut that it delivers. It's just, it really was an incredible right. episode of TV.
0: Yeah, I mean, listen, anyone who who's listened to you and I talk about Lost on post-show recaps in the past knows that season six of Lost is not my favorite thing on the planet, and Lost is very close to being one of my favorite things on the planet. Um, and a lot of that has to do with the sideways story that's going on on Lost season six. I don't love how that lands. I don't love how that plays. And yet, here I am saying that International and is, you know, not just what I think is the best episode of The Leftovers, but it's going to go down for me as one of my favorite te- television experiences of all time.
1: Mine too. Um, and, and, but I need to ask you a question about that. Uh, and not necessarily your rankings, but the, the reasoning behind why. Because if you tie lost in, I think that a lot of people online uh, and probably listening at this point are debating still whether this episode is meant to represent. Uh, reality, uh, or like an alternate reality, a spiritual world, if you will, or if this is meant to represent some sort of fever dream that Kevin has as brought on by the poison or whatever he drinks. Uh, Obviously, AJ Mass and I talked about that a lot last week while you were gone, uh, and we talked about how certain cultures, certain religions, traditions. Um, substances are consumed, which cause people to go on these sorts of things. I mean, we even hear Kevin's dad talking about God's tongue in this episode. Right. Uh, there, this, this is not the... There's ayahuasca is, like that think, the main one. Uh, and, you know, people consume substances and go on these trips for spiritual revelation. And so my question for you is, are, do you enjoy it either way, if it is meant to represent Kevin truly going into... This this sort of purgatory or limbo-like state uh, and finding his way out and emerging from the grave? Or do you only like this if the show is still grounded in a realm where it could be either?
0: Um, I prefer it if it could be either. I believe that it's going to be either. I don't think that The Leftovers is going to give us one way or the other. That being said, we do know Damon Lindelof tends to err on the side of Man of Faith, but I do feel like The Leftovers is... You can be, you can be this person. You could be this person who believes, believes, believes. You can be Virgil who says you have to go and fight your adversary. And you can be Laurie Garvey and says you could take some medication and you could kick this thing. And I think that this episode leaves room for interpretation in a great, great capacity in both directions. Now, if the next episode suddenly turns around and outright confirms for me that this is this was not a fever dream. This was Kevin Garvey on the other side doing battle with his most powerful adversary. I trust the show to sell that to me at this point. This season has been so transcendent that I believe that I can buy it. Um, what I prefer is the ambiguity. I love the ambiguity. That's one of my chief critiques of the ending of Lost in that I wish that there was more ambiguity there. I wish that the answer that we're ultimately given about what that sideways reality is wasn't so you know, set in cement. I wish that I could find another possible read on it other than what it actually is. I feel like this episode, you could take it multiple ways. You could take it at face value, that he is in this world that's not truly a hotel. It's some sort of... It's the hotel purgatory, or he's just you know in his death throes as he's choking on poison and all of that stuff. I I love that aspect. I love that duality. It's the thing that attracts me the most of the leftovers, and I don't expect that to change. And if it does, I expect the show will convince me that it's the right move.
1: Yeah, I think that that's... I mean, I think that's a really good observation, that the show has earned trust in that regard. We... During this season, kind of with the bird in the box, for example, we weren't sure about exactly how that would tie in. And then when we got the answer from Erica, I think we were satisfied with the answer that, look, we don't know why it could have happened scientifically, but that doesn't mean that it was something supernatural. It could have, There could be a very valid explanation for this that we don't understand. And I think the whole lens episode and the matter of geography episode and all of the things that have come up throughout this season – really point to the fact that certain people will be able to interpret things scientifically uh, or with information. And certain people will rely on them being supernatural or being a sign of something or they'll have to fall back on faith. And, of course, that is a central debate that is highlighted in Lost, the man of science versus man of faith. But these debates have been going on throughout history. And that this show really just underscores that those are the two primary lenses that we use to evaluate and and lens the world, the way we take incidents in. And I think that for me, I prefer the ambiguity as well. And I think that there really isn't too much here uh, to give you information one way or the other, that this would be all supernatural or this would be only uh, grounded in reality. I think the ambiguity is still there. I'm not sure if there's anything in this episode that stuck out to you as pointing to one sign or the other. A lot of people are saying the fact that Virgil was there and Kevin knew to kind of talk to Virgil is a sign because Virgil killed himself after Kevin was kind of uh, choked out by the poison or whatever. So a lot of people are saying the fact that Virgil was there and Kevin immediately sought him out meant something, but Kevin had gone to seek out Virgil before he took the poison. And Virgil had talked about being a guide and Virgil had mentioned all these things to Kevin before he died. So the fact that Kevin. And even
0: the the whole atoning line, like he had said, he'd he'd given him the shtick about the foul machinery.
1: Yeah. So close enough that Kevin, yeah, that Kevin would, would be able to answer the kind of question himself, he is after all a, a cop. Uh, he does have the kind of thoughtful mind like that. He's able to kind of think through things. Um, the man of science, man of faith thing with Kevin is, is kind of dogged him all along. There was the issue with his shirts uh, in season one. There was the issue with the bagel missing in the toaster. There were all these okay. things that he could have, you know, thought to uh, explain magically, or he could have thought to explain um, with some logic or science or something like that. So. Kevin has always had the kind of mind that is inquisitive about these things. It seems natural to me that his subconscious would be filling these things in with information that he had from while he was alive. Mary's presence there in the in the afterlife is something as well that I think Kevin could have easily filled in on his own. A lot of people are pointing to the fact that the balloon said it's a boy uh, as evidence that you know that uh, Kevin couldn't have made that up. How would he know? Uh, He's got a 50-50 shot. (laughs) He's got a 50-50 shot and his subconscious could be just expressing his preference. Like maybe he wants it to be a boy. Um, so I don't know. Like there's a lot, there's a lot there. I just want to make sure you and I are on the same page that it doesn't really matter to us as long as the show sticks the landing either way. Yes. I I just think that, I think that the show is, still being ambiguous about this. I agree. I think that what the show
0: has done and the reason why The Leftovers Season 2 has been one of the greatest seasons of television I've had the pleasure of experiencing and covering, you know, live as it's been unfolding, is because it has been you know, it's the man on the wire. You know, he's, he's, he's walking the tightrope and he's doing this death-defying stunt and you can't believe that he's doing this and you're afraid he's going to fall, but he hasn't fallen yet. Um, and it's this, it's this tight wire, it's this tightrope act of of can we can we have our cake and eat it too can we tell you that there aren't answers on the way but can we ask these high concept questions can we ask you to trust us take a leap of faith and believe that we know what we're talking about we know what we're doing and still deliver it in a satisfying fulfilling entertaining way and the show has consistently done that in every single episode this season um and i don't believe that it's going to waver from that i don't believe it's going to waver from the ambiguity i have my preference I have my preference in terms of my read. I want to believe that he is on the other side. I want to believe that he's doing battle with the most powerful adversary. I want to believe that he is seeing Patty off and and helping her, coaching her through to the furthest end of the other side. I want to believe that. And I don't know that I would have gone into this episode necessarily feeling that way. I tend to be a little more man of science in a a show like this. Um, And one of the transcendent things that this episode did for me is I want to believe in the Virgil aspect of it. I want to believe... I believe that Kevin Harvey, now Kevin Garvey again, is reborn after having this really true, profound, surreal experience. But I like that the show won't tell me that directly. I like that the show will leave it to me to decide. And I, I really sincerely hope and believe that the show will keep it that open. Um, this is as good a time as any to turn the mic over to Damon Lindelof, our third co-host. Not our third co-host. I wish. But he, I know. That would be great. We would have uh, such a scoop. I know. But he, he issued a statement about International Assassin to TV Line. This is his statement in full. The Leftovers is a show based on a supernatural premise, and although we want the storytelling to feel as grounded as possible, the presence of Patty after her death works directly with that premise. We knew when we designed the season that Kevin's main thrust this year would be ridding himself of Patty, and this episode was the culmination of that story. There are those who don't like it when the show gets too weird, and they are likely to assume this episode was all in Kevin's head, an ongoing fever dream catalyzed by whatever Virgil made him drink, a further manifestation of the psychosis Laurie diagnosed. There are also those who will assign a supernatural interpretation to this episode. God damn it, here goes Lindelof with the purgatory nonsense again. We get it, asshole. It is not our place to explain ourselves nor clarify this debate. The show has to speak for itself on this front. I make no apologies for this as Tom, the writers, and I have always been up front about the storytelling on this show being purposefully ambiguous. The Leftovers isn't about answers. It's about the frustration of not getting them and the emotional state that drives our characters to. Like throwing rocks through the windows of people we feel sympathy for or drinking poison. All that said, our intention here was simple, to try to do something different and unexpected and, above all, emotional. And regardless of what people think of the writing and or storytelling, I hope they can appreciate the incredible performances from Justin and Ann, who committed to this fully and fearlessly. I am proud and honored to be the beneficiary of their immense talents. Oh and there's still two episodes to go. That sums up everything that I love about
1: this show and this episode. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think that I think more than anything, when you say show, I think that's really what it what it really comes down to is that knowing that that's where this show is kind of planting its flag and saying, this is who we are, this is what we're going to do, we're not going to go into much greater detail about it we're going to present these things that you can choose to interpret either way Uh, and you're right, it is a tightrope act because one false move one way or the other, uh, you could really cast asunder on the internet, everyone's theory uh, one way or the other I mean, you could really put everybody to say the mere fact that this person was wearing this on their lapel is proof that Kevin could little details like that could matter right and that, so when you're doing these high risk kind of moves like this, you really have to to, to deliver in that plane. And Damon Lindelof, more than anyone, is probably familiar with that yeah. through his horrible experience on Lost, much right. of which, which was is, his own doing. Which is what makes this so gutsy yeah. to me: the yeah.
0: fact that he's doing it again. He's yep. going. He's he's back on the rope, but I think and he's
1: doing it beautifully. I think a couple things. One, I think there there is a difference between the audience for a network TV show and the audience for a pay cable show there just is it's a smaller audience uh, it's people's people's expectations are different I think that you can get away with a lot of things on a cable show from an artistic standpoint that right. on a network show wouldn't fly with ad breaks and with sponsors and with what people expect from each episode and from characters and from what they're used to and I think the second thing is I think he's also learned I think that you know you talk about a 10,000 hour skill he has a 10,000 hour skill in understanding how to create audience expectations how to dash them how to build them up how to deliver on them how not to do these certain things that are incorrect there if there's so there's a lot of lessons learned i think with lost and so i think that it is gutsy to put it in play again but i think he's playing in a little bit different of a stage and i think that he's a little bit more skilled uh in terms of setting out from the start to do a to do a thing to to have the song for your second season directly tell people let the mystery be like yeah. let it happen and To say we're not going to tell you what happened with the departure. All the things that he's done on this show, I think have changed the expectation game. So I think that he's getting, we're getting to see now if he's truly in control of these expectations and truly not having to make a show ad infinitum, uh, and not know when the end date's going to be, and have to continue to introduce things to, to feed that corporate beast, I think it's a different ballgame. And so we're getting a lot more art here. Even though Lost is great, and even though I love I love the ride, and even though there were things I was frustrated with with Lost, we're just in a different realm here when it comes to HBO, smaller audience, and a show that from the start, I think his mission statement's been a lot more clear.
0: And I think that he's been through a thing. You know, I think that he's been, he, he went through what he went through with Lost. It ended the way he did. He can say all day long that he's proud of how it ended. And I believe him. I believe that he has faith and confidence in how he ended that show. But there's no doubt that there are a lot of people who disagree and that he heard those opinions and that affect somebody that impacts somebody when when you have people telling you that the thing that you poured your heart and soul into made them angry and it didn't work and they didn't like it that's going to sit with you more than the compliments i think uh just from like my limited personal experience with something close to that um so he went through a thing and i really you feel the effect of that on this show yes yeah, season and I feel- one is all about like how to cope <laughs> yeah. Right, right. And I, and I, and I feel like now in season two, he's, he's come out on the other side. He's emerged from the dirt. He's emerged from his battle with his most powerful adversary as a guy with extraordinary confidence in the show that he's making. Um, and he's surrounded by redonkulously talented people that is, you know, helping him realize this vision. Uh, so it's an incredible collaboration and it is guided by one of the most confident creative voices I've seen on any show that I've ever watched. and i It's weird to say, because obviously I don't know the guy. I interviewed him on a red carpet once, but I don't know him. Uh, I'm proud of Damon Lindelof. I'm really proud of what he's doing here. It's really touching and affecting and moving, and this is the guy who is the chief voice behind one of my favorite pieces of fiction of all time, and I didn't know if he had this in him again. I was so excited for Prometheus, and Prometheus sucked. Uh, And, you know, there's a lot of that with Lindelof in a lot of his like end of lost and post lost projects for me and here he is delivering with international assassin which i called on twitter the best episode of lost season six uh i i think that this is one of the greatest episodes of television that he's ever produced um, across both of his major shows so just immense kudos to what he's done
1: we haven't even really talked about the episode. No, but I mean, yeah, I mean, I'll just say Tom Parada is also involved here and it's sort of the perfect marriage of source material and creator or showrunner in that the departure, Gives you the opportunity to truly evaluate how society would respond, and of course, the natural way to look at that is through the way society has always responded to incredibly, you know, unexplainable, incredibly horrible devastation uh, that seems to take place outside of the realms of the known world. And we started this season with the cave incident, Uh, and of course, we talked about a lot on this uh, on this show, on this podcast, about how the cave incident for those people at that time, would have been just as inexplicable as the departure was for certain other people. And of course, we find out in this episode that there was a wishing well put there and was called the Orphan's Well. It may well be the orphan that we saw in the prologue that's being referenced there. Right, uh, right. There may be a belief that there was a connection to the underworld right there. There's the whole Axis Mundi thing. It's just to say that Tom Parada only wrote the first season uh, s- source material. The book covered everything that – or the first first season covered everything in that book. The second season, I think they've taken it as a jumping-off point, and they've really nailed it. And I think that that more than anything, you can't consider a- anything without considering Parada's role as well. Uh, and Reza Aslan, the spiritual advisor, like this is a great team, as you're saying. Uh, not only actors, but creators besides Damon Lindelof, who are delivering on, kind of on the same page – a wonderful thing. That said, I'm curious to you, Josh, when you see the beginning of this episode, when Kevin kind of emerges from this almost like a birth canal, completely naked, covered in slick bodily fluid, sliding right. out onto the hotel bathroom floor. And then he gets to the closet in his hotel room. And what does he see on the plaque there? It says, it says, know first who you are. Then adorn yourself accordingly, right? Right, right, correct. And, and that's a quote from a philosopher. Uh, do you know, do you have any information about that? No, not. It's I'm from not. Epictetus, I think. I'm not exactly sure how to say it. Epictetus, uh, and there, you know, you can draw a lot of, uh, kind of connections. Oh, oh, this is, you know, he, he also talked about this and he talked about that. But I wondered if you think that there's a, a double meaning to this or if it's strictly like Kevin, choose your own adventure.
0: Right. It feels like a choose your own adventure. Uh, you know, you texted this to me. You were like, just imagine if he had put on the guilty remnant costume or if he'd put on the cop uniform. How different would this episode be? Because um, look, if it's know yourself, know first who you are and then adorn yourself accordingly. Does Kevin look at himself as an international assassin?
1: Yeah. Or or did he even consider that that was the international assassin suit? Or did he look at that and say, well, this is the most stylish option. This is the way I want to present myself to the world. Uh, this This is going to make me look the best. And I'm not going to look silly wearing this priest outfit. I'm not going to look crazy wearing the guilty remnant clothes that are hanging in this closet. So I better just put on the suit because I'm going to look smooth as shit. (laughs) And, you know, the reality is when you embrace that role, when you're vain, when you take that on, then the world's going to come at you all the time. Uh, If you worship yourself, uh, there's never going to be an end to uh, the people that kind of come at you or the ways that you feel you're inadequate or the ways that you're assassinated on a daily basis uh, through your looks or looking at other people. And so I do think it's interesting that he chooses the suit, not because it necessarily – uh puts himself in a position where uh, people are coming at him the whole episode which absolutely is happening um but because it it, it's it's of those four options he was like this is great i i prefer this one and i don't think it's because he wants to kill people i think it's because he wants to look good he wants to look great yeah and he does look great i mean it does help good yeah it does help that he he puts the suit on and looks awesome um,
0: but can you imagine the episode playing out in any of those other scenarios? It would be drastically, drastically different.
1: Well, this is what's curious because later on when he's taken by Patty's security through the kind of, uh, back hallway up to her suite, uh, he passes a character wearing a hood, uh, and looking like the characters in handcuffs being led down the hall. And if you kind of pause it and freeze frame it and compare that character is absolutely wearing the Mapleton police uniform, unquestionably. Okay. Uh, okay. The badge on the arm or the, the patch on the arm has the same sort of stars on the side. It's the exact same shape. Uh, I think it's unquestionably the Mapleton police uniform that that character 's wearing. And the bag on the head has to be significant. And throughout this episode, Virgil says at one point that, you know, don't think so straightforward. She's going to come at you in helixes and spirals and all these different ways. Is it possible that, you know, we're, that there are multiple versions of this story that exist and the one we saw is the one where Kevin succeeds? Is that why we have, for example, as Debbie Sapp asked us on Twitter, is that why we have multiple ropes on the bridge near the end? Is that why we have, you know, some things that go on? Do you think that that's sort of out there and that's really what's going on?
0: I think that could be a read on it. I think that that's a valid read. I think it could be that there were multiple attempts. I mean, it could also just be, you know, another person put on the Mableton uniform. I mean, we see somebody else in this episode. We see somebody wearing the uh, the priest uniform, and it's certainly not Kevin. It's a guy who looks uh, a lot more like um, uh, what's-his-face from Mad Men, uh, the guy who ends up with an eye patch. Uh,
1: yeah, uh, yeah, Kenny Cosgrove. Yeah. yeah, he looks like Kenny Cross- he, Cosgrove. He does, and he looks really sad to be a priest. He's not wearing the exact exact same outfit but it is close enough even with the design of the scarf the right. color is different the symbols aren't there but there are lines like the the design of the scarf is so similar that it, it can't be on accident right like People are choosing these paths, and I do wonder if these four things that are in that closet, let's say one of them is international assassin, one of them is a man of faith, a priest, one of them is guilty remnant, like a follower, and one of them is like a cop, like a rule keeper. I wonder if those are meant to represent four sides of Kevin's character, um, four things that he must sort of embrace about himself. I don't know if there's anything else really deeper there, but clearly the quote, you know, which is not quite like dress for the job you want, not the job you have, uh, but it is very much like to thine own self be true or know first who you are and adorn yourself right. accordingly. It's saying to Kevin, like pick what what best represents you. Multiple parts of this could represent you. Pick which one best represents you and face the world that way. Uh, and I think that throughout Patty has always told Kevin, you know, just do what you need to do, follow yourself, you know, pay attention, listen, do all these things that that he's had a hard time doing that forcing him to make a choice at the beginning of this episode is, I think, a really interesting way to then look at the rest of the episode, not only because of what he chose, but because of what he didn't choose.
0: Right. I think so. I mean, I'm very happy with the episode that we get. I'd be curious to see the alternate universe versions of this. Like, I'd be really interested to see the guilty remnant Kevin. I'd be interested to see the priest Kevin. I'd be interested to see all of that. Really glad that he's international assassin Kevin. And right off the bat with his big fight against the guy who insists that his name is Mr. Harvey, uh, that fight is so unexpected and so beautiful and so wonderful and so not anything you would have ever expected from The Leftovers. And yet, Here it is, and it just feels right. It just feels so right at home immediately.
1: Yeah, uh, and it's shot so well. There's beautiful natural light streaming into this hotel room from the outside. I mean, I don't even know if it was natural light, but it's certainly meant to be natural light. Uh, The way that this kind of – it's almost like a – because it occurs mostly in the bathroom, the fight scene is almost like it's shot in an elevator uh, or like a really confined space. They do a fantastic job shooting that action. It's crazy that it happens. The Kevin Harvey thing is weird. Uh, and, yeah, Kevin's looking in his wallet. No ID. He's only got euros for some reason. I mean, this is all so unusual. And I just think it's a great way to start the episode. Like, right away, someone's coming at you. And you got to wonder, if kevin if that guy kills Kevin in that moment, is that a failed attempt? And does Kevin wake up again in the tub, choose a different outfit, and go on and do something else? Or is that it for Kevin?
0: Yeah, good question. I mean, this and this is the kind of thing that would have really pissed me off and did really piss me off in, like, the sideways stuff that Lost did is, like, killing off characters in that universe. Like, well, where did that person go? You know, what happened to that? How do you get to do that? And what happens? What's the what's the after effect of that? I never really it didn't bother me at all when people were just getting murked in this. Uh, I didn't wonder too hard about where they went next or I didn't agonize over it. At least I kind of figured they were being delivered. I kind of figured that they're being taken out of purgatory and they're moving on to their next place. And, you know, Neil kind of has a telling line in this episode when the fire alarms are going off. And Kevin's like, don't you think we should get out of here? What if there's a fire? And Neil goes, then we'll burn. Yeah. Uh, And to me, that, you know, signifies like, well, if you go out that way or if you leave this place and you don't leave this place on your own terms, maybe you're going to the other place, the place you don't want to be delivered to. Yeah. Um, so I feel like that's, that's in play here. I guess, you know, let me, let me establish this with you, Antonio, because for me, I feel like this episode leaves Every interpretation wide open, which makes it a, a, a fun and expansive episode to discuss, but also a very difficult episode to discuss because it can be read in so many ways. What's your read? Is this in Kevin's head or is Kevin on another plane? How do you prefer to watch this episode?
1: I prefer to watch it uh, that it is in Kevin's head, but that he understands in his subconscious all of these sort of issues that he has to deal with in his life in order to really kind of evolve uh, and evolve in a positive way. Uh, and I, I like the idea that the man on the bridge, for example, and others uh, have kind of underscored to him that when you emerge from this, Virgil said it the last episode, Kevin hears it from the man on the bridge this episode, when you do emerge from this, you're going to be different. It's, something's going to be changed. Uh, you maybe have, will have lost something. Like It's going to be different. And I like that idea that even though you know uh, sort of subconsciously some of the things that are dragging you down, even though you could get into them really deep down, uh, you can – let's say you have a hole in your wall and you don't like it. It really upsets you that there's a hole in your wall. And so you cover it up with a poster and then you put another poster on top of that and on top of that and on top of that. And then one day you start – Kind of peeling them back, and then at the at the base, you remember that that hole's there and you 're frightened and you 're terrified, and you have a really hard time accepting and dealing with all of that, and then you do maybe you, you do put that up and you do fix the hole um, you 're in a different world then because you fixed the hole that was there now your wall is different, and you have to kind of learn how to live with a different wall there maybe you 're not going to have posters there anymore I think it 's interesting because I think Kevin knows that he has problems, I think he knows deep down uh, what some of these problems really are, and I think the <laughs> Part of it is he, he has this empathy in this episode and this compassion that we haven't always seen from Kevin. He gets angry very easily. Um, yeah, and, you know this is not <laughs> yeah. not always his go-to to, to look at Patty Levin, for example, and see just the her inner child, her 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 id, or the purest form of her, if you will. Um, he's not want to do that typically, and he's a police officer, so he's not looking for that sort of thing. Uh, he's kind of lived in a black and white world. Uh, he hasn't lived in a world where he. he's He's looking for greys or he's looking at things in a different way. And I think that he knows that he needs to do that in order to kind of exist in this world better and not be haunted by all this stuff. He knows that he – I think the smoking answer is the most interesting part of this when he's being asked in the lie detector, like, why do you smoke? And he says, I'm addicted to nicotine. Well, that's wrong. You know, He's going to get Windex in the eyes for that. Uh, The answer is he smokes for the same reason the guilty remnant do. Um, You know, he basically smokes to remember that the world ended. And that is the answer that stops the test Like she's satisfied once he says that. And I think he knew that all along. He knew that, you know, he's carrying around a lot of these issues that come from the departure. But He's not really dealing with them. And so I prefer to view this episode in a world where he is sort of not in purgatory, but he's in this great journey of sort of self-discovery and confronting the kind of things that he needs to confront in order to evolve. Um, That doesn't mean he's going to have the right answers about what to do next. It doesn't mean his life's going to be perfect from here on out, but it, it will mean that he's able to make progress beyond what he's experienced. And I think that that's a fascinating way to look at this because this episode encapsulates so much of what we've seen of Kevin Garvey and what we know. Uh, There are some fascinating connections to previous episodes, not the least of which is the end song, uh, I've Been Buked and I've Been Scorned. The spiritual that's sung at the end of this episode is the same song that begins in season one, episode eight, which is the Cairo episode where Patty kills herself. Right. Uh, and there, you know, there's those little connections there. Look
0: at that little, uh, that duality in the structure of season one versus season two. Yeah. Episode eight, episode eight, right. Yeah, that's great. That's great.
1: So there's just a lot that's really connected there. And I mean, I went back and watched that season one, episode eight earlier, uh, today. And I think it's fascinating to look at the conversation between Patty and Kevin in the cabin there and what Patty's really saying to Kevin there. And then consider what we, now that's Patty's, as she's alive, her last words to Kevin, you do understand. You know, you do understand is the last thing she says to Kevin before she slits her own throat. And I think Kevin has been fighting that understanding all throughout season two. They've been running to a different place. She's been haunting him. He can't get rid of that. And I think he's finally confronting that. I prefer to think that this episode is him confronting that than any kind of spiritual thing, which. Even in purgatory, uh, in the the spiritual realm, you're meant to atone for uh, the things that have happened. And, you know, you're meant to progress before you move on and you're meant to kind of do a little punishment there. Uh, and I think that it's interesting to think about that Kevin has to kind of deal with a lot of the things that make Kevin Kevin before Kevin can move on.
0: So what, you know, we we talked a bit about, um, you know, someone like Virgil and this Virgil evidence that this is actually some sort of outer realm that Kevin is inhabiting right now. Uh, and I think that there are ways, we talked about this already, there are ways to see a lot of what Virgil says and figure that, oh, Kevin could have just pieced that together. Like the whole, uh, I'm here, I'm atoning. You know, that could just be Kevin being like, yeah, well, this guy would be here because he... You know, probably did something not so great with his naughty bits once upon a time. Um, How about this, though? You know, how about the birds, the birds that are flying around in the hotel? To you, are these the birds that Erica has been resurrecting? Uh, Are these the birds that we've seen come out of the box after three days? And if so... How does that fit in with this narrative you're talking
1: about? Yeah, there's a problem because Kevin doesn't really know about the birds, right? That that to me
0: is if there is a smoking gun in the direction of Kevin is actually experiencing something otherworldly, that's one of the big ones for me.
1: Well, Virgil had birds at his trailer, and there's no doubt that Kevin would have seen those birds. If you remember, Virgil offers Erica a bird when she comes and yells at him about the pie. Uh, We've seen the birds all throughout Virgil's trailer, uh, and we don't know exactly what this link with with Virgil and the birds would be. But it is possible that Kevin saw the birds at Virgil's trailer and it, it, it just was like a question that, that sort of uh, sunk into his head and was sort of kind of nagging at him and making him wonder like, oh, what's with the birds this guy has? Like, I don't understand right. this. And so if Kevin's in this sort of subconscious realm uh, that is not a spiritual one, the birds are present because he associates the birds with Virgil. Um, the interesting thing about that, of course, is that birds also have a symbolic meaning, uh, which is, you know, a lot of people think that if a bird – flies into your house, for example, that it's a sign of death, Um, that a lot of people think that, you know, a bird uh, could could represent other things. And we already heard about what Erica uh, and Erica's grandmother's theory about the birds were. So there are those connections with birds as well. What's fascinating in this episode is early in the episode when Virgil sees the bird. Uh, when kevin comes up to virgil's like what the fuck is going on like right, what's happening right, right. virgil says i really hope they don't catch that bird right later in the episode after he drinks the water he kills the bird and that's what makes kevin realize like you're not with me anymore buddy oh no you've turned yeah you've turned and he knows he drank the water
0: right don't drink the water never touch this stuff
1: yeah don't don't push the button the button is bad um it is yes. interesting that that, you know, that we have the birds there. Uh, but it could be either one. Could be that Kevin saw them at Virgil's place and it's kind of stuck with him and he associates them with Virgil and he hasn't kind of a, a bad feeling about the birds. Or it could be that this, that every time Erica puts a bird in a box, the bird ends up in this weird purgatory realm, uh, where apparently only people that Kevin knows are. So, I just don't, you know, I don't, I'm not with... It's not
0: only people that Kevin knows that are here. There's tons of people. There's tons of random faces in the background. Yeah, but not everyone
1: in the whole world, right? So, like, there's not, like, 50 dogs or 100 cats or there's just one bird. And so is this the bird that Erica puts in the box? Could be. But if it is, what does that say about the rest of the people at the hotel? Are they all people from Miracle? Are they all people that have been within Kevin's sphere or Virgil's sphere? I mean, I think you have a really harder time drawing connections there because it's hard to explain the rest of what's happening there at the hotel if you're not connecting it to kevin in some way there doesn't seem to be a consistency to it to me
0: Mm. i don't know i don't know if i agree with that i think that there's there's enough ambiguity there as well that you know who the hell knows who the bellhop was who the hell knows who you know some of the people who work here have we met the balloon man before no i don't think so you know, so like, who knows who these people are? Who knows who the crying guy in the priest outfit is? Like, these could all just be passersby. So
1: why does the bird have to be linked to Erica then? Why couldn't it, it does, be it any bird? it? doesn't
0: have to be linked to Erica, but the fact that the birds in the in the past of this season have been linked to Erica just sa- sings to me that it probably is. But again, it's you could you could read it your way if you want.
1: Well, and I and I do want uh, I I want to read it the way where it could be either way, and I think right. that it could be either way. I don't want it to read it the way that just because there's a bird here means it's absolutely the same. Sure bird that erica buries in the box every time it's not like people in the hotel say god we have birds in here every day what's going on as as neil kind of observes and i think this is a fantastic line in terms of world building when neil's laying down in the hotel lobby or, or, or hallway saying he's been locked out he, he and he talks about like i don't i'm not going anywhere i'm dead uh and then he basically says uh you know like half the people in this hotel don't even know who they are like, they don't know their names. They don't know what they're doing. Uh, they don't really know what's going on. The other half are doing some crazy thing like you and calling themselves an international assassin or something uh-huh. like
0: that. <laughs> yeah.
1: So I do like that half the people in the hotel just are kind of red shirts that are weird, like, uh, not non-humans that really don't have anything. And the other half are doing crazy stuff all the time. Um, that, to me, speaks to a realm that maybe is not in Kevin's head, uh, or maybe Kevin's head has filled it with, uh, with everything. Like you said in the text you sent me, is like this Inception? Like, Uh Inception, it's a dream world, right? And so not everything in the dream world uh, is something that you've created a backstory with in your head, but it could be all from your subconscious, and it's just something that exists there. So I think the bird is not proof that it's not in Kevin's head. Uh, I think that the bird is proof that it could not be in Kevin's head, and I, I prefer that.
0: All right. I'm not saying that it is definitive, definitive, definitive proof, but I'm saying that the Virgil thing that you brought up before, that I can see more explanations for. In the, and the thing with the bird seems a little closer to, uh, to, to evidence that this is something.
1: So, so let's stick with more evidence of head or not head. Uh, we had some questions that were kind of in this realm. Uh, I know you really like the question uh, that Alex Wilpon asked us about, you know, if we're assuming that, uh, you know, what, what do you – Alex's question was, what do you think it says? that we didn't see evie or the other girls around the hotel
0: right 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 and so if this let's let's take it as purgatory first yeah Let's take it as purgatory first, and if it's purgatory, the fact that he doesn't see them there is interesting to me. Um, you know, we don't know if they departed, if they've been kidnapped and they're alive somewhere, or if they died. If they had died, you would you would figure that this would be a great opportunity to show them here. Like if they had died and we've seen and we had seen them in this episode, I feel like you would be able to walk away from that. And be like, oh, probably no good for these girls. Uh, the fact that like they're popping up here in the hotel probably means that they died in the real world wouldn't you agree
1: yeah it's interesting i would say yes in theory uh because you'd have to accept that what you were looking at was definitely a purgatory and that they had something to kind of atone for, or that they had something to kind of deal with before they could, you know, progress. And I think that, you know, if you want to connect Dante's purgatory, which of course the Virgil connection is there, Virgil is not in purgatory, the, the Dante part of the poem. Virgil is the guide in Inferno. Uh, and, and I think that he's only the guide for part of uh, purgatory, not the whole part. So, it is interesting that not the whole world is this Virgil guided world, that the second half is guided by Dante's lover, or not, is Dante's like muse, if you will, right. Beatrice. And Purgatory is a mountain in that. And there's different levels that represent overcoming the kind of sins, the seven deadly sins. And once you're climbing up this mountain and into the air, you have these things. So if the girls weren't there, it could just mean that they don't have to do that. Uh, maybe that does, it doesn't mean to me that if you're accepting that this is like a Purgatory thing, we're people have to uh, evolve. It could mean that the girls are dead and didn't need to evolve, that they immediately ascended into the earthly paradise, or maybe they were worse and they're still in the inferno. Like if you're evaluating kind of the classic understandings of purgatory, uh, whether it's spiritual or poetic or whatever, um, it could also mean that it's not its not purgatory, that this is in Kevin's own head about what Kevin must atone for. And yeah, there's some interesting things going on with, uh, with half-dead people or um, – People uh, that Kevin doesn't know or some nurse trying to deliver an organ in a box or uh, you know, people delivering things or Patty being a senator or whatever. There are these interesting things happening in the subconscious, but the fact that they're not there doesn't prove that it's in Kevin's subconscious. It could be anything.
0: Right, but the fact that they're not in – if this is his subconscious and the girls aren't showing up here, that's really fascinating to me as well considering one of the big moments of a most powerful adversary is he gives the, he gives his handprint over, um, to, uh, to to John John Murphy. Uh, and so, like, the, the, you know, they're coming at you, Kevin. Like, the, the, you know, beating down the hatches, you know, they're coming for you. They, they know that your handprint, like, they're gonna connect that. They're gonna connect that to the car. And the fact that the girls aren't even on the mind is, I don't know what that says. I don't know what that says that they're not even in his subconscious at in this moment, you would think that there'd be some sort of reference to them in some capacity. And maybe there is, maybe there's something here in this episode that is a reference to the girls that either we haven't picked up on or a bunch of people picked up on. And maybe you and I haven't picked up on one thing that I was thinking is the ropes on the bridge. Could that be connected to the girls in some capacity? Um, so I don't know. I think, you know, it, it just, it's curious to me that they are not really active Participants in this, uh, in this trip through his, you know, down the rabbit hole of his crazy, crazy mind.
1: Well, it is. And it is, it is, I don't know that, I don't know this to be, we haven't really tracked this on this podcast. I don't think that anyone's really tracking it uh, that I've read anywhere. But are, are you still, is it still possible that Kevin really is a suspect in this disappearance of these girls? And that he did something? And that he actually did something. Clearly he's going to be a suspect because of the handprint. But Kevin, if we know, I mean, Kevin woke up after having, quote-unquote attempted suicide having stalked away from Virgil's trailer carrying a rope and a rock. Uh, That's all we really know about what happened. We don't know if he had then subsequently encountered the girls, if something happened and he did something and tried to cover it up. If if he were carrying around guilt from that, I do think we would probably see some semblance of that, whether this is subconscious or metaphysical i think we would see some sort of uh manifestation of that so we haven't really talked about whether kevin should be a proper suspect to have to having done something with this girl's disappearance but i think the fact that they weren't there more than anything to me establishes that that shouldn't even be on the radar at this point like we as an audience should be behind the fact that kevin was not involved in any way
0: I was never really that worried about me, or at least I haven't been recently. Uh, <laughs> and, I, and I, and I, think for, for what you outlined just now is why I'm, I'm not, I'm not scared that Kevin's the guy,
1: but he does push a little girl into a well at the he end does. of this episode. So yeah. I, you know, if he ends up being the person that did it, I think we could look back on this scene and be like, wow whatever was haunting him or his madness that made him disappear into sleepwalking and not remember things that were happening and caused him to try to harm himself. uh, Yeah. That was really manifested in uh, when he pushed a child down a well because he did something to those girls like it's entirely possible he did something to the girls before he went to see Virgil we just don't know uh if Kevin was really guilty of that but you know if he was then I don't think we really saw much evidence of that there except for the stuff with young Patty so I do think that's interesting Footy fetish asked us uh and I believe that's in reference to soccer though I can't be sure um sure. Footy fetish asked us what's up with Mary being there and I think that right. that's also interesting, because to me, um, that's either what you go for it. What, yeah, cut, cut me on both sides of that one
0: yeah yeah I mean it's it's again it's the ambiguity it's you know e- it either Mary is like drifting in and out of both worlds because she's catatonic most of the time and maybe this is where her mind is even though her body is above board uh, maybe this is where she goes and maybe she blinks out of here every once in a while and she goes and she hangs out with Matt if Matt is right and he actually is seeing Mary speak to him um, that's a possibility that's if you want to read it from the supernatural lens if you want to read it from the man of science lens it's that um Kevin Kevin is like basically thinking that Mary is basically dead. Right. And that she, you know, pretty much belongs here.
1: Yeah. I think that's it. I think it's either she is, and that is what happened or Kevin thinks it. And that's why she's there in Kevin's sort of manifestation of this.
0: I just love that that's this episode, man. I mean, that's basically the answer to all the questions. It's like, it, it could be either way. It could be either way. And it's compelling in both directions. I love both directions. I'm happy with either of them. That's why I like that you have two different answers that
1: are equally valid. It's great. Yeah. Um, well, I'm interested then in your kind of theories on, on a, on a variations on a theme here. We talk about Kevin choosing his own adventure. We see the guilty remnant outfit. Clearly, that's something we find by the end of the episode that deep down Kevin has a lot more in common with the guilty remnant than I think he'd ever been willing to admit. Yeah. I think we see the police outfit. We understand that. That's Kevin wanting to be represented as the kind of keeping order uh, and being the guy who's in charge and represented know uh, the population that way. We know what happens with International Assassin. We haven't really talked about the priest part of this and how what part of Kevin's character that speaks to. I'm curious to you because I'm unfolding kind of a lot of Jesus iconography with Kevin. The security guard tells him at one point, make like Jesus. Spread your arms out like you're on the cross. Uh, he right. gets like a stigmata-like wound on his hand. Right. The priest outfit in the closet has the symbols for the the Alpha, and the Omega, which is absolutely the way that kind of Jesus the Christ is referenced uh, and talked about in Revelation. Uh, The Alpha and the Omega, the end of the beginning, uh, the beginning and the end, and all these things. Like, um, so... I think that that's fascinating, uh, with that. I'm, I'm wondering what your thoughts on that are. Um, do you think there's intentional Jesus iconography with Kevin emerging from the grave, for example? And are we going to see Kevin get crucified then? I mean, where are we going to take this if that's really what the show's sort of tipping off here?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that it's been following that path for a while now. I think it's been following a path of Kevin sort of in that role um, or with the potential of being in that role. I know this is an ensemble show. There's very many great players in this thing. Kevin is the central figure, uh, and he always has been. And he is somebody who has been talking to someone who may or may not be there, potentially a, a higher power, if you want to read it that way, through Patty. Um, and he's he is you know we got to find out more about what exactly he drank and what the hell that did to him and how he sprung back to life from that on a practical level i would like to think that we're going to get that but he did come back he came back after being in a very dire situation where it certainly looked like he had died um so, yeah, I think that that is definitely what we've been led to believe at this point. I think we have definitely been led to look at Kevin as sort of this Christ-like figure. Uh, make like Jesus really spells it out for you. And that's what these next two episodes, I think, are going to be very largely about. Is what does that look like for Kevin? Kevin is going to be running up against the buzzsaw of a really big time non believer in John Murphy, who is going to have an axe to grind in a very real way with Kevin if he believes that Kevin is somehow involved in the disappearance of his daughter. So is Kevin going to be crucified here in Miracle, Texas? A hundred percent possible. Absolutely possible, and that's only gonna further that image even, you know, even further.
1: Yeah, I mean, we already saw stocks and the sort of public kind of humiliation that come with the stocks outside of Miracle. We saw Matt basically say uh what I thought, you know, was not quite a quote directly from Jesus, but I thought it was a very Christ-like comment from Matt about people having compassion for you and seeing your suffering and learning from his suffering and respecting him because right. of that. So much of what happened with the you know, the story about the crucifixion and the reason that it needed to happen, not just Jesus dying and, you know, unlocking the gates to heaven and all these things and descending into hell and, you know, allowing people then to to advance and doing that. But the idea of it being public and of it inspiring people one way or the other, um, there's, there's a huge element of that. So that was present with Matt. And I think a lot of people see Matt's own kind of spirituality uh, and the, the fact that it's tested, we've called Matt Job a lot, But of course, you could make those comparisons to Matt as well. So I don't think it's just like purely there. Um, I think that that's something, though, that we're, we're going to want to look at the next couple of episodes, as you're saying, through that lens. Like, let's say that we are assuming that Kevin is sort of a Christ-like figure since he's died and re-emerged uh, from the grave. And, you know, beyond all expectations, even those of the spirituality and the faithful, maybe even those like Michael um, who maybe thought he would come back or, or had been told he would come back. Uh, to see it actually happening is shocking uh, and I think it will it's be... It's a true holy shit moment. It really is a true holy shit moment. That is exactly what is said. I do think it's interesting that we have heard about this happening on the show already when we hear about what happens with David Burton in Sydney, Australia. Correct. A man who has come back, who has been buried, put in a cave, I think. The rocks rolled away and he's not in there after three days. It's a very Jesus-like story that's happening with David Burton as well. And so is Kevin David Burton? Was the man on the bridge David Burton? Is there meant to be a connection there? I don't, I don't, I don't have the answers for any of that stuff, but I think they're important things for us to remember as we watch the next couple of episodes, as we think about the next couple of episodes, as we talk about them, that Kevin is definitely being presented like this. And where do we go from there? It's hard to say.
0: If the man on the bridge is David Burton, which was where my head went, what does that say to you about the where is my mind versus I'm on this you know spiritual quest?
1: Yeah, I mean, it. it it's fascinating because I, I don't know that we're ever going to get confirmation of that. We might. Uh, it seems to me that if we, If David Burton became a character in the show— Yes, you know? it seems to me if we get that confirmation and if the guy looks exactly the same and he talks exactly the same— then then you're going to really, I think you're cutting in the form of the spiritual argument. I think if you just have that guy's name end up being David Burton in the credits, I think you could say, well, Kevin heard about that in the background. Uh, you know, He heard it on the news or he didn't really register, but it sunk in. You know, you know when you have a dream at night and you're like, why did I dream about that thing? Oh, that's because I had I one.
0: I, I don't of, know what that's like. I don't dream. You
1: don't dream at all?
0: I've never dreamed of my own. That's not true. It's a lie. That's yeah. not true.
1: I know you think it's of pizza all the time. All the time. Yes. And, and so you have just de- delusions of grandeur every night. Uh, do you yeah. lucid dream about pizza?
0: No, I don't.
1: That's too bad. Do you sleep eat pizza?
0: Oh, I've been known to sleep, eat some pizza
1: Well, there you go, I know you dream, Josh, don't try to lie to me I'm sorry, I'm sorry It's alright, I know. I just know, you can't lie, You can't. I, I've got, the red light went off next to my computer I know, I know,
0: that. don't spray the Windex in it's my eye It's too late,
1: I'm spraying ah, it The good news heard. for you is it's pizza scented so Oh, good. it tastes so good, it burn. it's burn, is so sweet Could we make money from pizza scented Windex?
0: Uh, it might be good, it might be good
1: But anyway, I, I just, I do think that it's possible that, you know, Kevin heard a passing reference to David Burton yep. this, this guy pops up, and if you want to call him David Burton, fine if the guy shows up on the show and he looks and acts exactly the same, I think we're in a little bit of spiritual town. Um, I don't know. A lot of people think that that's supposed to be one of the rivers of the underworld, no matter which one it is. Uh, I, I don't know that there's a ton of – you know. He didn't, he didn't pay a toll uh, to the ferryman there. The men didn't really ferry him across the river. Uh, there's
0: no troll toll.
1: Yeah. We don't want to get into that boy's soul. Okay. Um, we, we got to pay the troll toll to get in. I understand <laughs> yeah. that. It was a little girl in this story. Right. Uh, so we're, we're not in the the same realm, but yeah, I, I think that that's fascinating. The Kevin Jesus stuff and the David Burton stuff and who this guy is. We have that moment. Of course we do. We have the moment, the lost in translation, like whisper moment. Uh, do you have any kind of any theory on what might have been said there? Not really.
0: I mean, it could be, is this the answer of what happened to the girls? Is this, does he now, is he going to come back here and say, I know what happened to the departure. I know what happened to the departed. Like, is he going to come back with some sort of revitalized belief and like sort of omnipotence of like, I know what happened. I know what's going on here. Um, I don't know. I think that it's just as powerful if he, never says anything if this is something that he just keeps to himself i think that uh you know you could say the lost in translation thing that's obviously a touchstone for me because i'm a nerd uh the the season 224 jack bauer whispers something ominous to nina myers and we never ever 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 find out what he said and that's so beautiful and wonderful i like that kind of thing Um, so I'm, I'm just as happy to never find out what was said to him. I don't really lose much sleep thinking about what that secret was.
1: Yeah. I think that that's, uh, I, I wouldn't, I won't either. I do think it's interesting when we talk about the cycles there. Um, I, I think that we, we can't say, we can't ignore the fact that after a certain point in their conversation, after he's dragged Kevin by the neck, after he's told Kevin, are you sure you want to kill a child, you have the opportunity to jump here. And after Kevin throws the rope over the side and chooses not to, to jump, um, the guy tells him, like, do this and it will change you. And Kevin basically says, yeah, this isn't real, though. And and the guy says, this is more real than it ever has been. Right it makes you yeah. wonder, like, is this is this – so this is – let's say it's a cycle – Kevin's gotten to this point before, but he's never really put everything together. He's never come back to the room at the right time to find Neil sitting there, to really understand who Neil was. Maybe he's done that, but he's never rescued young Patty from the pool before. Maybe he's never made the choices that he's made in the order that he's made them. This time, he's made them. He's eschewing the rope, and it's more real than ever because you're very close at this point, dude. Like You're ready to go to that well. you got to walk a mile further, and then it's you and the girl, and you're going to push your inner. you're not going to do it, but you've never really gotten this far before. This is more real than it ever has been. So I think that at that point it doesn't really matter what he says to him. If it is cyclical, Kevin gains some piece of information there uh that maybe helps him, maybe it doesn't, and he moves on. You know, it probably was about the girl. Uh I don't really know though, and I don't think that it truly matters. I do think it's interesting though.
0: I think it's interesting as well. Let's talk about um let's talk about the fact that Kevin Sr. Pipes in from Perth, Australia. He's having, he's tripping on God's tongue. He's got the fire in the hotel. First off, like, even beyond what does that mean? What are the ramifications? Just so great to see Scott Glenn back on the show in such a ridiculous, ridiculous scene. What a wonderful, wonderful scene. And another testament, not just, you know, Scott Glenn's talents speak for themselves. He's a very accomplished actor and he's just freaking phenomenal. But another, Tip of the cap to Justin Thoreau, uh, when Kevin Sr., as he's finally drifting away, just gives like a really, really sweet, I, I love you, uh, to his son. And Kevin Jr. just gives a really great kind of like stunned, I love you. Back to him. Just the line delivery on that was one of the most wonderful things that I could have possibly hoped for from this episode.
1: Yeah, I think that was great. I, and, and Kevin's line delivery was almost like, "Yeah, like yeah, I, lo- I love you too." Like, right? You know, like what what is this about, man? Like, why are you like, what's going on? Like, yeah, I love you too. It's so weird because they have the same hotel room. Like, that's the weirdest right. part yeah. of this to me. Yeah is that, okay, in this spiritual realm, Kevin and his dad are so similar that they somehow have the same hotel room, such that when Kevin's dad's people are burning the fire and it's setting off the alarms, it seems like they're setting them off when Kevin's end. Yes. And maybe they've (laughs) been the ones responsible for it all along. Personally, I like to think that you have the smoking guilty remnant wandering the halls of your hotel. The fire alarm is going to go off five or six times a day, for sure. Yeah, But I I like the idea that that Kevin Sr. may have been responsible for it. Um, And I love that. I love that it's the same hotel room because, of course, it is. Of course, course it's either in Kevin's subconscious. Me and my dad are very similar. And, yeah, he's going to tell me he loves me and I love him. And, yeah, he's going to tell me to go to the well, uh, which is maybe something I created in my own head anyway. So if he's a manifestation of my own head and he's not truly talking to me through some weird fire ritual involving drugs in a hotel in Perth uh, and that's not some Axis Mundi connection – then he's in my head, and in my head, my dad tells me he loves me. He tells me the right thing to do. He's got my back. He's reaching out to me from across the world, and I, I have this guidance from him, and I, I like that. And we're very similar. We're both crazy. We're both in the same hotel room. Like there's, there's there's these similar things. Or in the spiritual world, it's just it's just crazy. Like there's just these weird connections because of the Axis Monday thing. Because of you know the magical kind of realism. It's interesting because of we, we talk about. Nobody's talking about this, I think, because they're willing to accept the magic. But, you know, Virgil is there because he's dead. Uh, and Holy Wayne is there because he's dead. And right. her name was Gladys is there because she's dead. Right. Why is, uh, Kevin Sr. there? Because right. he's not dead? Because he used this magical kind of spiritual thing to tap into the other world? I mean, if you're willing to accept that and not willing to think on some level that he could also be dead, I think that that's, uh, that says a lot. That's interesting, uh, that you're, you know, that, that people are, are willing to just totally exclude that possibility at this point.
0: Because, because he's his constant. That's the other option, right? I love you, Kevin.
1: (laughs) I always have yes if anything goes wrong kevin senior is my constant yeah yeah yeah. that's the other option uh, so but i mean i think it's possible that he's also dead if you want yeah. to buy into that and you yeah. want to buy in like he he could well be yeah. dead and that's that and,
0: probably died in a hotel fire
1: yes if we find out that he died in a hotel fire in australia are you going to be more or less likely to believe that it was spiritual
0: if that's pretty damning <laughs> that would be pretty damning It'd be pretty i
1: don't serious. think so because he could have been doing the fire in this other re- it's just uh, so weird like but you know it's there and it's awesome it's a great scene like you said i agree i liked that there were kind of shock scares throughout the episode when we heard the noise of kevin's dad we actually heard his voice before that he's surprised that it's the same hotel room but not surprised enough to be blown away by it he just kind of Uh moves on (laughs) yeah Yeah, it's great it's like it's the same room you know like yeah Um, our Philly had asked us, are we going to hear from Kevin Sr. again? And will he act like Kevin is crazy or confirm the story if we do? Do you think we're going to ever hear –
0: that's the other piece of if Kevin Senior is dead, does that make us you know buy into what's going on here? What if Kevin Senior says, "Oh yeah, we had a great conversation. We had the same hotel room. Wasn't that weird?" Or if he says, "Dude, you're cray. Uh, that's interesting. That's interesting to see how that plays out."
1: Yeah, I mean, and that could be it. Could be really fascinating. Uh, I don't know. I, I I would love to see Kevin Senior again. Obviously, I love that we got him as this sort of world traveling madman, just just jacked up on some kind of crazy drug in the middle of. Perth, Australia, lighting a hotel room on fire in hopes he could talk to his son through the television. That's exactly what Kevin Sr. would do. I love it. It's great.
0: Um I I feel like we have not really talked very much about Patty. Um, and I feel like we oughta. I feel like we gotta. That's yeah,
1: the elephant I've, in the room.
0: You know, and you know, and Dowd. Terrific. Endowed, spectacular. Jeopardy Patty, great Patty. Uh, little Girl Patty, fantastic Patty. Patty from Lowell, Massachusetts, who is not actually Patty, terrific Patty. Every Patty we got in this episode was great Patty.
1: Yeah, uh, and... I love that they took a villain in Patty and they gave her so many dimensions here that we find out that not only was she probably shamed and abused as a child and told she was fat and she should shut up and all these horrible things. uh, And that ultimately at the end of the day that that's probably a lot of what she was bringing to the table as adult Patty and why she was in the kind of circumstances she was in with Neil. But I I I don't know if we get confirmation that Patty was on Jeopardy. I, I just you still have the Lori kind of ex- excuse where Lori told Kevin about Patty and fine, but I feel like Pat, Patty knows or Kevin knows Patty probably as well, if not more, than Laurie knew her at this point. It's really kind of this weird love story between Kevin and Patty, and Ann Dowd is so damn good. She drops into the Massachusetts-born Ed Dowd when they give her the kind of double to play, uh, and she's she's really like, I, I they found me on Facebook, they had me get plastic surgery. She's fantastic there. Like I said, you can go back to that first, that, that episode eight, the Cairo episode in season one, uh, and... She's fantastic in that episode. That's when she recites the poem uh, to Kevin and tells Kevin, like, you don't have to hide from me. Uh, You understand what's happening. I want you to understand. I want you to go all the way. I want you to do these things. She's so great in that episode and the end of it's so powerful. She's doing it in different ways in this episode. and We've seen her throughout. Uh, this season, kind of playing different versions of Patty, the angry Patty, the taunting Patty, uh, the Patty who is just kind of there and saying, I can help you. Uh, it, it's fascinating. And she's so good in this episode. I think letting her be a child and seeing all that play out, it really not only like shines light on her, but it shines light in the way that that Kevin ultimately comes to see her. And I think that's why he ultimately is able to evolve. When he shoves the child down the well and then adult Patty is down there saying, Kevin, help me. He's yeah. down that well in a second.
0: In a second. He's
1: like leaping over the, the corner, climbing down the sides. He falls in. He's so eager to get down there. Uh, and it, there's a, such a great tender moment between the two of them at the bottom of the well where he kisses her head and kind of hugs her right before he kills her.
0: Right. So it's yeah. just
1: so great. And I don't know, what do you think about Patty Levin as as Senator Patty Levin? Uh, and And this is an alternate reality, I guess, if you take it that way where the guilty remnant has really taken hold such that she's a credible candidate for president. Uh, she's going to campaign rallies and meeting with supporters and everything
0: running on the platform
1: of nihilism. We believe in nothing. Yes. And, and not talking about North Korea guns, abortion or Neil.
0: Yeah. Don't talk about Neil.
1: Yeah. And I, I don't know. I just think this is, it's really fascinating and let's, let's compound it a little more because of how good and doubt is and how confusing this is in the scene where where Kevin meets with her in her room, she gives she gives a she talks about a ton, right? She says she never wants to drink the water, which I think is interesting if you're considering like she never wants to leave this spiritual realm or
0: if she knows what's up and she knows if I drink that water I become one of these zombies and I'm here.
1: Yep, and so maybe that's uh, that's sign of that. I don't know. But she says I stick to you, which is a direct quote from her here in this episode, which yep, yep, yep. you know is fascinating. But I take all of those things. If you're like putting lending credence to any of that, I don't drink the water, I stick to you. Her great speech that she gives about assassins being motivated by beliefs and how those beliefs, uh, enrage them because they secretly share the belief, uh, with the person that they're shooting. She tells a story about John Wilkes Booth. She sort of in a racist way tells it to Wayne, uh, but it is fascinating. Um, she talks to Kevin then about why people would want to kill me and accept my, not accept my truth. What right. is my truth? All of it, right? Great scene with Patty. Then we find out that it's not Patty, right? That it's a double. Right. Yeah. So, what do we? Well, just it's a get? double
0: who is like she's a double who is very well versed in all things Patty Levin. If you were going to get a double, wouldn't you want that double to know everything about you and all of your platforms and all of your philosophies and all of your talking points? Sure. It's a great double. It's a very
1: well paid, high value double. I think that I mean it's it's such a high pay or well paid high value double that I don't think that you would even begin to know like which one was which and who should right. be elected president or or where that ends. I just think it's that, like which one is is the queen Amidala is it Natalie Portman or is it Kira Knightley? <laughs> it's a good question, and I don't have the answer to that. By the way, yeah, um, no, it is it is interesting because I, I just don't know what we're meant to believe about this. Patty is, is that to me, if you wanted to be on team subconscious, I think that that is proof that this is more subconscious and that the, this, this is this is the
0: most like dreamlike thing, or I don't know if I want to say the most dreamlike thing, but this is a very dreamlike thing where suddenly the character changed.
1: Yeah. And the, the fact that this character would know everything, um, we could only, but th- that's funny because if we accept that we're operating in a world where we know that she is a double and she wasn't lying. Why? Because when Kevin kills her, it doesn't end.
0: <laughs> right, right. 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 So,
1: that's all. So we're already accepting the magical rules to, to validate whether she's a double or not. Uh, uh, which, is, which is ridiculous, and that's uh-huh. the sort of game that <laughs> yeah. this episode is asking us to play. Like Confirm something as fact by using it, no logic whatsoever, like the logic that we've established for the world that you're uh, observing. And so I just think that that's fascinating. I think that when you talk about unreliable narrators or how you want to evaluate where those words are coming from, the fact that it's not even really, apparently not even really Patty um, is, is fascinating. Uh, and, I, and that to me is proof that what she's saying is coming straight out of Kevin's head. But I understand that people could read it differently, that she's a well-paid double, that she knows Patty's lines through and through, um, that that is exactly what Patty would say in that moment. Does that mean that it has less gravitas though?
0: Uh, I don't know that it has less gravitas. I think the things that she was saying are so profound that, you know, regardless of who it's coming from, I would, I would choose to believe that it's, you know, if we were to take this as supernatural world, uh, and this is just like a well-informed double, you'd imagine that these talking points are coming from Patty. And just the types of things she's saying are so profound that uh, it doesn't lose any meaning when she says that on October 14th attachment and love became extinct in an instant, and it became cosmically and abundantly clear that you can lose anyone at any time. And I know that you love this line, Andrew. Antonio, our cave collapsed when, when she says our cave collapsed kevin yeah uh we could spend all our time digging through the rubble looking for signs of life where we can transform um, and I, I think that there's, you know, there's nothing that can take away from just how, how beautiful and how on point that speaks to the themes of the leftovers yeah. and everything that we've seen this season, starting with the very first thing we saw this season.
1: It's true, but this metaphysical Patty not only exists beyond the rules of the world in which she lives, she spans all space and time such that she understands what the first season of the series was and she can spit out a quote that's related to it. I think that that's fascinating, right. um, because it, this I think that this is as much like it's as much a voice of something that's outside Kevin's head as anything else. And, I think that that is, that's a fascinating way to look at it. The archive collapse thing, obviously directly connected, uh, you know, even if it's just for the audience to that first scene of the series, uh, this season. So I, all of that is so great. What about, you know, what about Holy Wayne's kind of place there and the fact that Holy Wayne is in the room and Patty goes on to tell a story about someone who shows up at a rally and ditches a baby with her. Right, right,
0: right, right. Yeah. Which is, you know, very classic Holy Wayne story. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I don't know what I made of Holy Wayne. Holy Wayne to me was more comic relief than anything. I think so. You know, it's just, it's just like, here's Holy Wayne. Here's Holy Wayne making silly faces and silly voices when he's like, the mind, you cannot trust the mind. Yes. Uh, it's just like, it was just ridiculous. It was just so absurd. And Holy Wayne, like taking a dump when you see him, which is obviously where he was when he died. He died in the toilet. He's talking about deja vu, which is very matrix, which is a, probably another touchstone that you could talk about here with this episode, that there's a matrix-like quality to this episode. Um, so I don't know I, I like just and just like the physical comedy of Holy Wayne of him grabbing Kevin before Kevin goes to the bathroom and he just like touches his ear and she's like he's like up oh, she's she's almost here she's coming in right now uh, there's just
1: drinks that water like a total jacket yeah. like he's just cackling yeah. basically while he's drinking it and he's all about drinking the water uh, he gives that you know, like you said the mind the mind the mind he gives that great kind of line about you can't trust the mind it plays tricks on you and we all know who tricks are for and and Kevin's kids. like, kids, and then they're like, ha, 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 ha. So it is kind of fascinating that, that Gladys is pushing the water left and right, that Wayne drinks the water, that Wayne's talking about how you can't trust the mind when we're probably in the middle of something that is literally a manifestation of what's deep inside a character's mind. It's almost like right. Kevin's subconscious telling Kevin, don't trust me. Like, don't trust what's happening here. I could easily be playing a trick on you. Uh, right. And that's why you're getting offered water by your subconscious. That's why all these things are happening. I thought that's a a fascinating scene. I love that Holy Wayne gets to show. We kind of speculated he might pop up again when we saw the YouTube footage of him. Yes. Early Holy Wayne, um, but I think it's I think it's interesting. And like I said, Patty tells a story about the baby. I didn't. I wasn't sure if that was meant to be like like little Patty, like because she says that, that baby's gonna grow up and it's gonna be fine. And then she says, Yeah, it's gonna be fine. And then she says, What? Uh, it's going to be fine. It's, it's going to have a little difficulty attaching to people. Uh, it's going to have a little, little difficult, difficulty giving and accepting love. But you know, that's a strength and that's a survival mechanism. I almost felt like that was a little bit of Patty justifying and validating her own existence and her own way of being um, after, especially after the after the departure. Um, right, you know.
0: and I think that's one of the reasons why I really like the read of this episode, which is a very valid read. I like the read of this episode of it being some other place, some place that exists outside of Kevin's mind, because I like the idea of this Patty having some agency. Uh, and, you know, we also if, if you want to explain the double thing, we've got the line from Virgil earlier on in the episode, where, like she moves in helixes and spirals and things like that, she plays on her own rules. She doesn't play on straight lines. So she could have blinked in and out of that Penthouse suite, you know, in the time that Kevin went to the bathroom. That could have been the authentic Patty before Kevin comes out of the bathroom and shoots the the Patty Double. That's possible. I just like the idea that Patty is describing herself there and that the weaknesses we're seeing in Patty and the you know the young Patty and just like the these sad aspects of her and these really emotionally raw and vulnerable things. I like I like the read that Kevin might just be humanizing her, but I also really like the idea of her working through her crap one final time.
1: Yeah, I mean, and we don't, you know, we don't know whether she was really on jeopardy. We don't know, and Buswagon had asked us that on Twitter. We don't know, um, where, you know, the orphan story comes from or the fact that she could be a senator comes from. I like the idea, as you're saying, of Patty with agency working that out. But I also like the idea that Kevin has projected so much of his own problems on to this person who he watched kill himself in front, you know, or he watched kill herself like right in front of him. Like he is, he, he's seen her answer and response to this horrible incident that affected the world, he had clearly responded very differently. He clearly disapproved of her response in innumerable ways. He didn't like that his wife left him. He didn't like that it split up her fa- his family. He didn't like that they were trolling the entire town of Mapleton. He didn't like that they were causing these horrible incidents to happen on his watch when his number right. one job was to prevent, the, for prevent them from happening. He hated everything about the guilty remnant. But we find out in this episode, I think co- confirmed whether it's in his mind or not, that deep down he also understood them on some level. And so I do, I do think it's fantastic that we have a Patty that could have her own agency, but I also think it's fantastic that we have a Patty that is totally sort of a mirror, uh, maybe even a funhouse mirror, that reflects a lot of what Kevin sees in himself or worries about with himself. To me, that makes Patty Levin's actual last words when she kills herself – have a lot more power. When she says to Kevin, like, you don't have to hide from me. You do understand. Like, that's what she's trying to hammer home to Kevin. And I think that's what's really stuck with him is that he's done so much to kind of cover up the, the departure and not really confronted it and not really confronted how it affected his family and tried to soldier on through like a good cop would that he's really, he's at a point where it's driven him literally crazy, uh, trying to deal with everything that's come up with that. And he really has to kind of go down deep and really think about Patty and see her, see himself in her and be compassionate to her and for her to evolve in advance. And I think that that's also a fascinating way to see Patty, even if there's no agency in it, uh, to see Kevin kind of understanding her issues and seeing her as a person and understanding how, her response to those issues could easily have been his response to the things that have happened to him and why it helped her, didn't help her and how he has to kind of deal with those sort of things to move on. Everyone tells Kevin throughout this episode and previous that this is going to change you. It doesn't necessarily mean it has to change him for the negative.
0: Yeah. 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 So how is this going to change Kevin? Uh, and com- coupling that with, we have Kevin drowning Patty here. Patty is potentially gone. Um, Are we done with Ann Dowd on the show? Is Patty still going to be haunting Kevin moving forward? And if not... What kind of Kevin are we getting here? There's a lot to unpack in that question, but I think that those two things are linked.
1: Yeah, Alex Coons had kind of asked us, where does the show uh, go from here emotionally? Will it be hard to care about family drama after these high stakes?
0: I don't think so. I think that the family drama with these characters has been so great also that this was this was just a ridiculously, really, really, really good episode of television, but all of the other episodes are still great, and I still really care about this family.
1: Yeah, and I think that you can't you can't put Kevin Garvey in this family, just like you can't put Nora Durst in all. She's experienced in this family. You can't put these people in this family and and call it family drama without them bringing all of that behind them, without them dragging ghosts, without them bringing things that are that changed them spiritually or didn't. Did you just say dragon ghosts? Dragon ghosts. Yep, dragon oh ghosts. <laughs> it can't happen. It's somewhere north of the wall. There's ice spiders and dragon ghosts.
0: Oh, let's not get into that. But
1: anyway, uh, I, yeah, we we if we get snowed in one weekend, we can do that. But um, okay, God. <laughs> but no, I think that if you, if you, this is not just family drama. This is not parenthood. Uh, this is parenthood with characters who uh, have all of what they've experienced and brought to the table that we already know about. And yeah, they're not going to deal with the family drama on a metaphysical plane, probably, but they are going to deal with it having been influenced by everything they've experienced. And don't forget, Lori's in the mix too. And we don't know what happened with Lori and Tommy, but Lori's obviously got a very dug in view about kind of the, the, the ability of medicine and how all of it's hokum and all of this is BS and I think Kevin's going to come away with a slightly different view at this point I mean the man has literally been killed and brought back to life there's no way that doesn't change a person's worldview such that they're going to be at odds with the very same person who just told them not to use the medicine so the fan or to use the medicine so family drama is heavily influenced by everything we've experienced and I think as a result the emotional heft and weight is going to be there and I certainly trust in the writers and actors to Pull that off Um, I don't know I think it's fascinating Because We had so many water references and metaphors throughout this episode we had and throughout the season of course and then tying them into throughout the season is what i was just going to say do we think that i mean we can continue the water kind of thing we've seen the banner saying and two of them went down into the water we know where kevin was found we know where the girls like to swim we know what the doctor was kind of evaluating the samples of water 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 everywhere and at least in kevin's dream not a bit to drink
0: well, a lot to drink, but don't do it,
1: but don't do it, Rawl, It's just kind of uh you know where we're at with that. Uh, what do you think about the water aspect of this and and is it just kind of there as something you can connect all these things to, or do you think it's going to serve a greater purpose in the last couple of episodes?
0: I think that it'll probably be, there will be some physical aspect and importance of water before this season is said and done. Whether it's, we, we're going to find out that the girls drowned, or somebody drowned, or somebody's going to drown, um, or maybe it's the it's the, it's the 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 guy, what's his name, what was his name, Goodheart. Yeah. Uh, is Goodheart going to be somehow linked to the disappearance of the girls? I feel, like, I feel like water will absolutely be playing a role in this thing.
1: Yeah, I think so too. I mean, we've got a well here, uh, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. and they're, they've gone to the well a lot uh, in terms of the water metaphor, but I right. don't think that they're yeah. I don't think they can be done with it. I think the miracle water, the idea of water as baptism, uh, all of these things are, have been prevalent throughout, and I think that we're not going to get through the next two without getting into some heavy water stuff. Uh, and I think that that was something that, because it was so prevalent throughout this episode, Kevin using the water to clean out his His eyes, people not drinking the water, him emerging from the water in the bathtub, Uh, Virgil saying, like, why are you so soaked? Patty drowning in the pool. Uh, All of these things. Kevin uses the water in the sink to cover up the sound of him assembling the gun. Um, There's water, water everywhere. Like I said, it is interesting. The only thing Kevin drinks is the bourbon that is offered to him by Neil. Does he actually take a sip? I think he does. Uh, It's interesting. That bourbon is Ezra Brooks bourbon. Uh, We talk on our Justified podcast all the time about bourbon. That's a good bourbon. It's made by Heaven Hill Distillery in, in Bardstown, Kentucky. So, I don't know if it was chosen by specific saying this is a heaven product. Uh,
0: That's a shout out to you, Antonio. That there's
1: a link. What's that? What's the shout out? That, yeah, that,
0: there's like, hey, check out this Kentucky bourbon, Ken- brother.
1: Most bourbon is Kentucky bourbon, at least a good one. So, anyway, yeah. that I, I just think it's fascinating that, you know, that we've got all these kind of libations, if you will, that are in play in this episode. And Kevin's always been a guy who has kind of struggled with, uh, you know, we shouldn't drink too much and where he goes when his mind goes away, there's a couple times in the first season where that happens. And so I don't know, fascinating to me, um, where, where exactly we go with all these metaphors, but I do think water will be very prevalent there for sure. Uh, are, are,
0: what, well, what, let's go back to the end thing. Um, Are we done with Ann Dowd? Are we done with Patty Levin? Is Patty Levin off the show? Is she vanquished? Is she cleared? Are we getting her moving forward? Or was this it? Was this her swan song? I
1: think we're, I think we're probably done with Patty Levin as a speaking character. Um, I think that if she pops up again speaking, we're going to have some problems. That said, we were pretty sure that Nora Durst had been cured by Holy Wayne to an extent. And we saw how, how much, how, not how shallow beneath the surface she was truly keeping a lot of what was what was involved with that. So, I don't know that we can say that this cured Kevin of Patty Levin. That said, I do think we have to take some steps forward here, uh, and I don't think they should include Patty Levin haunting Kevin, speaking to him whatsoever uh, in any way. That doesn't mean I don't think we won't see an image of Patty kind of disappearing into the woods or fading into the water. Uh, something else where Kevin might Goodbye, see her. Goodbye, Kevin, Kevin, Kevin. Yes, yeah, something like that. I think it could happen. Um, <laughs> but I, I think we're done with her talking, for sure.
0: Yeah. Oh, man. Well, that's so sad because she's been so good. She's been so good, but all good things must come to it.
1: Yeah, you know, they, I'm sure that they would prefer that they get to continue to use her, but I just don't. I, I mean, I think if for the sake of the story, I don't think you go through this incident and she just pops right back up.
0: I agree completely. I think that that would be really hard to buy. I think that we just had this really tremendous goodbye episode to this character and this real uh, breaking apart of Kevin and Patty. A love story. In, yeah, a love story, which is how Justin Thoreau describes it in that interview we referenced earlier, where he says that uh, Anne and I we always talked about it as some sort of love story, and we would think of our scenes as love scenes, uh, which is a really beautiful way of of talking about these two characters. And so, in a way, it's like it's like saying goodbye to your sick lover. You know, your lover who's who's you know dying, and you you're putting her to rest. Um, I mean, you're putting her to rest by (laughs) pushing her down a well and shooting her in the face and drowning her and holding her underwater, but you're saying goodbye nonetheless.
1: Yeah. It's Uh, great because you're saying goodbye with a story about a four day run on Jeopardy Uh, and and a final Jeopardy answer of Kazakhstan, which by the way, was a final Jeopardy answer last week because of course it was. Well, oh, that's right. Yeah, you texted that to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's fantastic. Like, just, it's in it, the water. It's
0: in the water, man. The, the leftovers.
1: Stuff, the stuff that Ann Dowd is doing in this episode and just the way she plays so many different flavors of Patty. The Patty that, that tells the Jeopardy story at the bottom of the well is is – heartbreaking. And the fact that her her great shame was that she won, allegedly, won enough money on Jeopardy! to do exactly what she needed to do, which is leave Neil, and she didn't do it. And she blames herself for that, it sounds like. And she has Probably a lot of reasoning for that uh, i mean i 've worked in i 've worked with victims of domestic violence and abuse, and it's it 's a very tough thing for a lot of people to leave that and i I think that a lot of people end up blaming themselves when it 's not their fault and so I think it 's fascinating to see all that play out i mean if this is Kevin's subconscious. I think he has a phenomenal understanding of other right. human beings. That um that that is buried deep down and that he keeps behind a lot of international assassinship or police work or whatever. Um that, that scene is just so great. It's so beautiful. The way this episode is shot is gorgeous. There's so many great shots. The shot where Kevin and young Patty are walking hand in hand as the sun is setting and they're leaving the hotel and you see the windows is great. The scenes of them walking through the forest with the moonlight and the sun coming rising, up to the well, coming up to the well, gorgeous, gorgeous, just beautiful. And just the emotion of him kind of kissing her in the head right before he drowns her uh, is sort of a mercy killing is fantastic. Um, Patty says she's scared in that moment. And yeah. she says it in a way that's like, like real, and I just think that this—not only seeing Ann Dowd, but seeing so many different versions of Patty, whether it's a double, whether it's the aggressive, angry Patty, uh, or whether it's you know this this child Patty or the broken Patty—it's uh, it, just heartbreaking and so good, so good.
0: Uh, we didn't really talk about Neil much at all in in this podcast, and I really don't want to. All I really want to say, is just like publicly for the record, is f Neil.
1: Yeah, and it's the same guy who was like a horrible guy on Mad Men. Um, This is just, you know, this poor actor. Like, I guess he's working; he's fine, but he's playing some real scumbags. And uh, yeah, f Neil is right. Like, just yeah,
0: Neil. Neil, if you need somebody to take a dump on you, give me a call. That's all I'll say. You I, won't like it. Trust me. That,
1: I'm not even going to get into that. that <laughs> there's a lot that's wrapped up there. Um, and I, I hope the water uh, motif does not reemerge. Because um, that would be truly I'm sorry. Brutal. That was
0: really gross. That uh, was really yeah, gross in graphic. Yeah, but it's just how I feel.
1: It's interesting because this guy is just, he's a horrible guy. And the at word. first I think he's not a bad guy. When Kevin pulls Patty out of the pool and he tells Pat, Kevin, mind your own business. Like, I'm like, you know what? Kevin should mind his own business. I'm glad he saved the girl. I understand why the guy doesn't necessarily want to talk to kevin about any of it maybe the kid's got a problem like maybe it's none of kevin maybe it really is none of kevin's business what happened here and that doesn't I don't think that there's any justification he saved the kid's life and the guy is upset about it. this guy's obviously just a bag of d see i didn't think that at first but then when he reemerges, uh and even when he reemerges at first he's like you're an international assassin and you have these angry violent tendencies i like people to take a dump on my chest are you going to judge yeah. me You know, and fair enough, like fair enough in my mind. It's like everybody's got their own problems. Everybody, I mean, look, we just spent an episode – Thinking about what made this horrible person in Patty the horrible person that she was, we can't forget what the guilty remnant did to remember October Fourteenth in Mapleton in season one. They right. literally broke into people's homes, took pictures of their families, made loved ones dolls out of them, and then replaced them in the homes to emotionally. They're emotional terrorists. The guilty right. remnant, like that was an emotional, emotional assassin. That was an emotional terrorist attack. That was an emotional assassin. Uh, that you know emotional emotional assassination that played out there. So this is not a great person, but. By the end of this episode, we have sympathy for it, and I think that if we found out more about Neil, we might have sympathy for him as well. But that said in this episode, bag of D.
0: yeah, bag of D f Neil, I have no interest in uh in finding out more about that guy. Um, okay, so your read is that this is in Kevin's head At that I mean we're talking about that there's multiple reads, but your preference is that this is in Kevin's head. Kevin wakes up at the end of this thing. He emerges from the dirt. He's alive in
1: an earthquake.
0: In an earthquake, which is wonderful. This whole thing with Patty happened. He's vanquished Patty. How to explain Kevin not having Patty in his head anymore? If this was psychosis, how to explain the death of the psychosis?
1: Well, and I think that is because uh, if you have this sort of, this is the the sort of, uh, this is the sort of. Belief system, if you will, uh, the reason that people ingest substances, the reason that people go on these sort of quests, the reason that people you know use these spiritual substances whether it 's peyote or whether it 's like uh, ayahuasca or whatever you want to say it is there 's a reason that people lend credence to it there's' in, we've, there's been other shows that have kind of delved into this i can 't remember the show but there was one show where a character was addicted to opiates. And they were given sort of a mind medicine that allowed them to conquer the medicine the, the the addiction through you know through their mind that it wasn 't where they weaned themselves off and then they just had to resist it that they sort of even reformatted their neural pathways and their sensors with this medicine so I think a lot of people take these sorts of substances and, and emerge after having taken them, having transcended or having changed or evolved, and they cite these quests that they went on or these visions that they had as transformative so I think if you can if you can suggest that, that if you suggest that that sort of thing doesn 't happen you 're ignoring all of that, and so I think that you can read it one of two ways: either Kevin took poison and died, and he died in a very similar way to a snake bite, and you know you have those connections there and then he was metaphysically dead, went to purgatory, vanquished his most uh, you know, his, his biggest adversary or whatever you want to call it, and came back. Um, then that's, you know, that's fine. Or he took some kind of crazy substance that made him hallucinate and tapped into his subconscious and Took him on a spiritual quest. He completed the quest, and he reemerged. And therefore, he's changed. He's evolved. The thing is gone. He vanquished it in his subconscious. He vanquished the manifestation of it, and that's that. Um, it can be controlled through pharmaceutical medicine, like Lori pointed out, or it's entirely possible it can be controlled or vanquished through natural medicine and through some of these other substances that might have been in what Virgil gave him.
0: Right. What do you think Virgil gave him? Do you think that Virgil was telling the truth and Virgil actually straight up poisoned him and killed him and all of that, and that's why he squeezes out the epinephrine and all of that? Or does it, it, do you think that there's more to this story that maybe Virgil just gave him a hallucinogen, something like that?
1: Well, I'll tell you this. I don't, I don't think we're going to find out. I think Michael will tell Kevin what Virgil told Michael. But that doesn't mean that that's what really happened, right? right? Like, Virgil could have given Kevin some mescaline peyote crazy mix. And Kevin goes off on this crazy trip and whatever. And he wakes up and he, he never really died. For, we, we never saw EMTs come in, flatline Kevin. He was never pronounced dead. We never saw him drive away dead. I mean, we don't know that Kevin was officially dead. Michael could say like, check for a pulse, couldn't find it. That doesn't really prove anything. You know, Michael could say you weren't breathing. That doesn't mean much. Uh, right. You know, Kevin could have easily started breathing again. We don't really know how this all played out. So if, I, if I'm if i thinking it in my way, I like to believe that Virgil gave Kevin some concoction that didn't kill him, that put him into some sort of state where he was kind of out of it and that he reemerged on his own, uh, and that's that. I, I prefer to think of it that way, but I really prefer that it be ambiguous, that we don't know, and I think that's ultimately what we're going to get. I think Michael's going to tell us a version that Virgil told him, but I don't think that proves anything.
0: Yeah. Where are we going with this? We've got two episodes of The Leftovers left, or at least of season two. Knock on wood that we don't just have two episodes of The Leftovers left, uh, but of season two of The Leftovers. Where are we going? What has what changed Kevin Garvey going to look like? What is that going to look like in interaction with the other characters that we know and love and know and loathe in some cases, perhaps even? Um, what? Where, where are we going? What's the end game of the season? If Kevin's arc, according to Damon Lindelof, was confronting and conquering Patty, And let's say he's done that now. What's the next step? Where are we moving? What's the end game of this season?
1: Well, he's in trouble, right? We know that he left the handprint on the window. We know the handprint's been taken, and we know the handprint has been sent to the lab. It's going to come back as his handprint. He's in trouble. And I don't know where that trouble ends, but I I fear where that trouble ends, especially when John Murphy finds out, if he finds out that Kevin's been in league with Virgil, Uh, and, and, you know, Kevin's been spending quiet time alone with Kevin's, with Michael, with John's son, Michael. Like, I think that this could all go very, very badly for Kevin. Uh, and very quickly. Yeah, very quickly. Because what we know about John Murphy is he's not a man to take lightly. And so I, I don't know how Kevin is going to convince John Murphy that he wasn't involved with the disappearance of the girls. But it, I could get worse before it gets better, and I'm, I'm wondering if it does get better. Like I'm wondering if now that Kevin has sort of completed his vision quest, if you will, I want to know about the changed Kevin. I want to know what part of Kevin died uh, with the incident, Uh, and I, I don't think it's going to be. Oh, Kevin is, is lunat, he's a lunatic now. Uh, you know, is Kevin going to be? I've seen speculation Kevin's going to join the guilty remnant. Oh, no. Because he truly got in touch with them, and he understands Patty's plight, and he understands the message that Patty was trying to send people now. And is he going to go join the guilty remnant? Is Kevin going to get closer to Tommy now? I don't know, but I think the door's open for those sorts of crazy things to happen. But I think the, the, the prominent, the clear and present danger is John Murphy. And I think that that could get really worse before it gets better. We joked earlier about whether Kevin ends up crucified. But I... I wouldn't stop short of saying that that's entirely possible.
0: Like literally crucified. Yeah,
1: maybe not nails through the hands but like <laughs> right. tied up on a on a cross like and and left kind of there for everyone to see uh and not given food or water until he until he, you know, says what happened. I, I think Miracle's the kind of place where it seems that, like the rules are kind of malleable, and John kind of gets away with whatever he wants. Especially an outer miracle, I, I think anything's really possible. And I think we could see Kevin publicly humiliated, shamed, tortured, all of those things for this information that he doesn't even have. I had speculated that, you know, what we might see is in this part of this vision quest that Kevin go, that Kevin's gone on, we might actually see him remembering what he may have or may not have witnessed when he tried to kill himself that night. We still don't know what happened in that sleepy time. Is he going to remember that now? Is that how he's going to be changed? That could, that could be a game changer for sure.
0: That would be a game changer. If he somehow through that and knows what happened to the girls, that could be big too.
1: Right. Or just even has any more information, right? Like, right. you know, oh, well, they weren't there when I got there at X time, you know, that any little thing that he's able to remember from this incident, because of course he's going to be straining to remember it now, uh, because he's going to be put on the slab. He's going to be put, uh, to kind of test and, and, and interrogated, I'm sure, and tortured probably would be my guess. So he's going to do everything he can to remember. Maybe Patty will show up again and and help him at this point instead of hurt him. I think that would be fascinating.
0: Oh, that'd be cool if she was some sort of uh, guardian angel type. Yes, Um, she's evolved. Yeah, but I I also just I think that she's got to be gone. I think that 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 that's probably right. Um, all right. Well, we gotta start wrapping up here, which breaks my heart. I would love to be on here for another three hours. Um, but we talked a little bit before about what my reaction to watching the episode was as I was texting Antonio. I'll tell you guys what Antonio texted to me after he finished watching was this is gonna be an audiobook. Forget a leftovers podcast this week. We're doing a leftovers audiobook. <laughs> uh I'm a little audio booked out right now. Yeah, if you don't mind.
1: <laughs> That's fine. Yeah, we can stop. I won't even get in. Into you know the the connections between this person's writing or the Cairo symbol in uh, in Christian mythology, if you will, uh, and right. the representations of Jesus therein, uh, and all the things that I'm kind of tracking. And there's some gra- I mean, I, I thoroughly encourage everyone uh, if they want to go down those rabbit holes, jump on Reddit. If you're not familiar with Reddit, there's good people on there. Uh, don't don't listen to there's the scary negative people about too. There's scary people. There's scary people everywhere, Josh. Literally everywhere right. in the world. There's pockets of scary people and Reddit is no different than that but Reddit is also full of beautiful people discussing these theories on a deep level and if you're really into that sort of thing that's a great place we'd also love to hear your comments in our comments section here at postshowrecaps.com of course but if you really want to get down, there's some great posts on Reddit about the different representations of Patty. There was one about which was her id and which was her ego and which was her superego. And if Kevin defeated each one of those uh, and how what that means, you know, with child Patty and politician Patty and guilty remnant Patty and broken Patty and all of that. There's just some fascinating stuff there. So you could really dig deep on all of that. Um, I didn't really have too much that jumped out at me that I thought was, was super fascinating. I mean, there's some great things. So the lie detector scene is great because it seems to work in this weird plane. This metaphysical yes. lie detector does seem to work. Uh, so that's that's really interesting to me. It was great to see Gladys again, don't you think?
0: I love Gladys. I love Gladys. And we didn't, we've did not we never really got a lot of talky Gladys. So I like talky Gladys.
1: Yeah, she really, yeah, her name was Gladys, but we never really got to talk to her. So that was great to see her pop up again and see all the security that was going around with that. I did think it was interesting that even when Virgil had kind of drank the water and he was gone and he was just concierge Virgil, when Kevin and Patty come down and Kevin asks him about the well, Virgil says, are you sure you don't mean the caverns? Yeah. Interesting, right? Because, yeah. of course, we know there are bats and caves all around Austin. But, you know, we have the cave from season one or from the beginning of this season. A lot of people have speculated that the girls might be in that cave or in a similar cave and either hiding out or trapped, um, that that's a possibility. So, you know, that the caverns reference there did not just go kind of unnoticed by me. Um, I don't really think there's, there's too much else that is like surface that we have to talk about. Is there stuff in your notes that we haven't hit?
0: No, I mean, there's there's tons that we could be talking about. I, again, I do think that the audio audiobook comment was funny, but I also think that there's truth to it in that there is so much that we could dig into. You just brought up Virgil again, and I just really want to salute Stephen Williams, the actor who played Virgil, who uh, has been really great on this show um obviously i don't expect that we're gonna see a whole lot more of him now that his brains are all over his trailer but he was really beautiful in this episode as well i thought that just the way that he played kind of like the um you know like the the mi5 leader when he was giving that was great his marching orders like
1: you're an international assassin like it was just really really good yeah and and she's running for president (laughs) She's running for president. Yeah,
0: you know that. Like all of that was, it was so great. I mean, I'm such a 24 geek, so that really like sung to me. Um, but also, like contrast that with once he did drink the water, and he's like, I'm so thirsty. I was so thirsty, and there's just something really soulful and lost, and um, you know, something just really profound about that. And I even liked when little Patty is like, he's gonna go throw me down the well, and Virgil's reaction instead of like alerting the authorities and triggering, you know, yet another action sequence. Virgil
1: was just like oh well then I hope you brought your swimsuit little lady yeah it's great <laughs> this
0: was really, really it's good. great
1: he's so he was really good and I agree with you I love that scene because at this at this point I think the episode could have easily gone off the rails we actually had uh someone tweet that their their thought maybe was that this was from the official Wiley um said was that the most bizarre episode ever or what has this show gone off the tracks for me and you obviously not I no, the show is
0: firmly on track. Yeah,
1: this is, this is this is where the tracks needed to be for sure. This is yes, exactly yes. where I want to go. This is the station I want to arrive at. Yes. Uh, this is the hatch I want to be in. But yes. I do think that I think people could read that. And I think this episode could have gone off the rails right there because Virgil hops in that car doing some clandestine stuff in that parking garage and he's like you know, why are you all wet? Doesn't matter. Don't drink the water. You know, well, the way you're dressed, you're an international assassin. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, she's running for president. <laughs> he's dropping yeah. all these narrative bombs here. And yeah. They're hilarious bombs, but he's doing it so seriously and so matter-of-factly that the season, that the scene's pacing just just pushes through. And you're right there in the next scene where the SUV pulls up and Kevin's doing that hilarious little like prairie dog ducking where he's ducking in the car. So right. you won't see him. It's great. Um, all that is, is, is great. I mean, you could, like, like we've said, you could get into the, the philosopher's works that the, the quotes on the door, you could get into the analysis of Dante's purgatory and all the different people that are there. You could get into, um, the flowers, what kind of flowers are where they? they look like un unopened lilies to me, which of course, lilies are synonymous with Easter. Um, you know, so there, you could get into all of that or you could get into the
0: Lily, Lily being the name of, uh, the baby.
1: Yeah. Isn't it great that one baby is named Evie and one baby baby's named Lily. I'm sure that's yeah. not a tribute to Evangeline Lily, right? I'm
0: sure. I'm sure.
1: Yeah. So you can get into all that. You could get into the loss of it all, or you could just say, this is a show that presented an episode where you could evaluate it as, as scientific and something that's totally in someone's subconscious and all the things are mostly explainable, or you could understand where they come from, or you could evaluate it as a metaphysical, spiritual purgatory type thing, and both have merit. And I think the show drilled both of them, executed on both, stuck the landing in both. So complicated, so amazing, so wonderfully acted, wonderfully shot, wonderfully written. This is just phenomenal.
0: How about this? let and and this is an appropriate thing to start ending on. Uh, one thing that we really did not touch on very much at all, and we can let it play us out is uh, is the Verity music. Yes. How about how about the score in this episode?
1: So great, and just the, I love the the use of, of the different. There is a great thread on Reddit, and I apologize I don't know the user's name offhand, where they talked about Lars von Trier's films and how in the in those films you just have one song kind of used over and over again in the. Therein. I, I love the, the kind of recurring themes here and how sometimes it's orchestral and sometimes you've got the vocals and the chorus. I thought that was fantastic. It was used, I think, to to really kind of pace the episode so well. Um, there is, of course, the the discussion of what the actual opera is about and who, where Verdi was in his life when he wrote it. I think all of that is um, pertinent, but I think more than anything, the the music itself was just used so spectacularly throughout this episode to add suspense to add scares to for musical stings uh you know it It was
0: an it was an anchor you know it was
1: was a motif it, it was a true motif
0: it really it really anchors every scene. Like the when it comes in, it's just it, it brings you back. You know, again we talk, we touch on Inception and you know the music in Inception, which is such a touchstone. Uh I I feel like it's that in, in in that same way that it just it brings you back to the moment. it reminds you of what you're here for and what you're doing and what you're experiencing and what you're watching. I like the sameness of the audio. And not just in the music, but also in like the TV going crazy and the fire alarms going ballistic. I thought the the audio in this episode was just the audio cues phenomenal.
1: Yeah, it, it was just all so perfectly executed, and and the timing of it was great. When Kevin gets done putting on the suit, then there's a knock at a door and the person's there with the flowers ready to kill him. And I love the idea that if you're doing a choose-your-own-adventure, like maybe Kevin doesn't open that door. Maybe he doesn't. Maybe he closes it and doesn't let the guy in. Maybe he doesn't take the flowers because he doesn't trust him. And in every one of those opportunities, maybe end, end the story for Kevin or he's not able to advance until he picks the different option, until he chooses the different page. And he, he's got, at some point, leave his finger out of the pages that he already chose and just proceed through this line. And the music is what carries it through uh, and takes you from one scene to the other and links the choices he's made, links the, the opportunities and the moments. It's just, it's really well executed. The fire alarm going off at inopportune times. It, Right when he's going to press the elevator button, for example, to me, some of those things, the music, the sound cues are more evidence of it not being spiritual, of it being in his head, because it's also convenient when some of the things happen in the way they happen. There isn't a lot of downtime in this episode where Kevin's waiting to see what happens next. I mean, one of the only moments is when he gets back to his room and he opens up his closet and only one of the suits is left. Who knows what happened to those other suits? He's advanced beyond choosing the suits again, and he's in a new level. And then you hear the TV sting come in with his dad. So it's yeah. like there's just these moments where you've got great audio popping in uh, and really changing the pacing of the story, driving it forward. Just fantastic.
0: Really, really great stuff. We could, again, we could yeah, really We'll link here. to a
1: great interview with the director uh, where yeah, he talks yeah, yeah. about everything that was done uh, from Variety. Uh, Craig Zobel, the director, just some fantastic analysis there as well.
0: Yeah, there's definitely a, there's gonna a bunch of show notes that we've got for you this time. Lots of really great links. You guys do some digging as well. Antonio's suggestion of going down the Reddit rabbit hole is a really good one. You should do that. Just go and read a lot of the material that's out there. Some of these recaps are really smartly written. This was a really provocative episode of TV that has inspired a lot of conversation and so much conversation that we couldn't do it in nearly two hours of podcasting. Um, I think that that is, that is the testament of a really, really tremendous hour of television. And really, almost regardless of where the season goes from here i'm so enormously pleased and satisfied and blown away by what we got in international assassin that for me best episode of the leftovers by far and a top tier episode of anything that i've ever seen i'm so happy Antonio. this show is so much fun to talk to you about I, I just have a blast every week we get together i was sad to be gone last week aj crushed it i'm i was sad to have missed that episode because that was such a good episode I'm really glad I didn't miss this one.
1: Yeah, me. I, everything you just said I agree with, I, um, especially you know, that this is just a top-notch episode of television. Yeah. I was really glad uh, to have AJ's take last week, the wind or tiger thing. And oh, the,
0: God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the au- tiger in the bush was so good. Yeah, the author that Great. he
1: referenced. I mean, these are the sorts of issues that the show is taking on head on. And like I said, it really is about the way we choose to lens the world, the way we choose to see the world, and whether we want to wear rose-colored glasses or spiritual-colored glasses or realistic skeptic colored glasses or whatever you want to do, however you choose to lens the world, I think you can Do the same thing with the show. And I think that it can validate your theory one way or the other. I don't think there's anything in the show that is invalid if you want to choose a different way of looking at it, if you want to be spiritual or if you want to be scientific. And I think that from the jump, this show has presented us with these things like we talked about here on this podcast, with the bagel and everything like that, where'd the baby Jesus go and everything. There's always a way you could look at it that's metaphysical and a way you could look at it that's not. And I don't think the show has directly confirm the supernatural, uh, or directly confirm that it's all science. I think that the show is saying people are asking these questions about you know, matters of geography and about lenses and things like that. And that's what we do when we have these incidents or things that we don't have answers to. We look to science and and we look to faith. And we look to these things in the way that the characters are doing it in the macro in The Leftovers is fantastic.
0: Yeah, it's great. All right. Again, we could be here forever. Every time we say that, we start talking. Even even more, we (laughs) on our
1: microphones. (laughs) We got to go. Ah, my eyes, my eyes. Pizza flavored Windex.
0: Uh, All right, flavored.
1: We're doing pizza flavored Windex. That's a whole new thing. I thought it was scented.
0: No, no, no. How about this hashtag Pizza Windex? Let's call that the hashtag. I think that's easy. Uh, AC Mazzaro. Two Z's, one R. He's on Twitter. I'm at Round Howard. We'll be back next week talking about the penultimate episode of The Leftovers, season two. What, are we, what do you think? Any any final predictions for what we're getting next week? I mean,
1: uh, even though the stigmata from his hand disappeared, I think we're going to have a lot more of the persecution of Jesus kind of metaphors with Kevin. I think that's going to persist. I do think we're going to get a non-committal answer from Michael as to what happened, something that won't confirm or deny the spirituality of the event. Uh, and I think that John Murphy... Is going to be really a force to be reckoned with here and difficult. And it looks like from the previews, we're going to get some. We're going to get some guilty remnant action here. I don't know if it'll be in miracle or if we're going to go back to wherever they are and, and follow Tommy. But I'm, I'm excited for that.
0: I'm excited for that too. Not for nothing, but you know, John Murphy has called people a five in the past. This upcoming episode is called Ten Thirteen. Uh, what, 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 that's like six to midnight. What if Kevin Garvey's a Ten Thirteen? That sounds bad. Yeah, that doesn't uh,
1: sound great. Uh, I mean, no, there could there's be a probably, lot.
0: Yeah, there's a lot. To it's a, I mean, I think Ten Thirteen
1: sure. is like is probably like a police code for something. I would imagine
0: police code for something, maybe a you know a biblical passage. There's probably a lot. I mean, bring your bring your thinking hats. Well, Ten Thirteen's
1: also yeah. the day before the. Deployment. Departure. Oh, Ah, that's right. Oh yes. man. Okay. So ten fourteen being the departure. Ten thirteen, the day before the departure. Meg, her mother died the day before the departure. That's and right. That's why she thinks she was. You know. That's why she might have been angry because she. Oh, was look at us planning flags. How about this? Denied- can I plan, a, can okay. I plan a flag? Yes.
0: This is this is uh, John Murphy shot Virgil on ten thirteen,
1: the day before the departure. Possible. Possible. Or or yeah. I mean there there's a yeah there it really could be anything could be it could be like i said the best titles are probably multiple things right so there there you go we'll we'll look we'll look out for that we'll try to scour for you and determine what the title means next week when we get a little more information but yeah i'm looking i'm looking for kevin kevin jesus kind of coming forward to bear here i want to see more of that
0: all right i want to see more of that too all right give us your hashtag pizza windex send that to antonio and myself we'll be back next week with more leftovers Monstrous episode this week Antonio, killer job as always
1: Same to you Josh, thank you so much
0: Alright, thanks guys, we'll talk to you soon, bye